So first and foremost, um, hello to everybody. And Yan, uh, we have a very special guest this week. This is Andy Shaw. And I don't know, Yan, if you are aware of this, but Andy is like one of our greatest foot soldiers. Um, <laughs> yes, I've seen a lot, of, a lot of stuff. Yes. He is consistently out there furthering the cause of the hustle. And I am so, so grateful to you, Andy, for that. And um, it means so much. I mean, a few times a day, I get a little, we, I should say, probably get a little pop-up saying Andy <laughs> has mentioned the hustle in some post. And it's an 80s music thing or whatever it is. And you've gone back and found the link. It is amazing. So thank you for everything that you do for us. Oh, guys, it's uh, not a problem. I'm kind of your unofficial street team, if you will. <laughs> That's <laughs> we, true. We could, use, we could use every bit of the, that we can get. No kidding. Yeah, and, and, you know, John, you know, you and I have emailed and spoken once. I, uh -huh. I found you guys back in November, right when the uh, Jim Babjack of the Smithereens mm -hmm. episode hit. Um, I Every week I used to search for you know, smithereens. It used to be Pat Inizio interviews for the uh, most part. Yeah. And I find this hustle podcast with Jim Babjack and I go, what is this? And <laughs> I was just blown away. And like you said, scan through the, uh, you know, the episode you you're listening for, but then go through the archives. And I was scrolling through the archives going, okay, I need to download that and that. And that. <laughs> Next thing I know, I downloaded like 20 episodes. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so <laughs> and glad. I just, yeah, I just think you guys are doing a great job, and I just want to spread the spread the word. And I think it was about a m couple months ago, uh, John, you were feeling like uh, you know you're kind of pounding your head against the wall, saying, "Is anyone listening? Are we getting, you know, traction on these?" And I said, "Well, gosh, you know, I feel bad that John and Yan are putting in all this work. We got to get the word out." So I just kind of, like I said, spread spread the news. Thank you so much. And just to give you a heads up, I go through about periods of that periodically by the way every now and then it's like what is anyone does anyone care is anyone listening are we doing the best we can here so i because i feel like yan and i, I feel like we do our very best to put out a really uh quality product and i know that 
music lovers would appreciate it, the hardest part about all of this is getting it in front of the people who would care. And um, I never know how to do that. I do. I, I try everything I can come up with. And so it takes people like you helping us out and the guests letting their fans know to, um, you know, and now thankfully I can tell a couple of times a day uh, we can see that somebody is going back and downloading every single episode. They probably just found us, you know. So sure. anyway, it means a lot what everything that you're doing. It means a lot. Thank you so much. Oh, and again, not a problem. Just happy to help. Well, good. Now, you, uh, we allowed you to select our intro song, which is a classic, Dyslexic Heart by Paul Westerberg. Why did you pick this song? You know, I, uh, I love the song. I remember hearing it when I, the first time I saw single, the singles movie. And uh, I just happened to see a Rolling Stone article maybe last year. Uh, where they went back and talked to Cameron Crowe about the soundtrack. Mm. And uh, I just found it, you know, it's just one of those songs that just kind of, you know, grips mm -hmm. you. And uh, I just, I love it. And I wanted to find something that is, uh, you know, a part of my hometown. So I'm here in Min uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, Paul Westerberg's got his start with the uh, the Replacements, a big local band here. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of debating, you know, it was going to be either a Prince song, but I think Prince has been a little overplayed, you know, especially with his passing. Sure. And, uh, you know, Dylan, eh, couldn't really think of a good Dylan song to open with. But I said, gosh, you know, let's, let's go with a replacement song. And then I couldn't narrow one down, and I just happened to think of this one. You nailed it. I love Paul Westerberg. Um, I wondered if there would be, if there was, uh, if the Minneapolis connection was the motivator. I think it's a great, and I've been pretty, I think I've mentioned it on here before. I mean, that single soundtrack was life-changing for me. And um, probably my, it's, I think it's my second favorite movie soundtrack of all time. And I feel very strongly about my music, my movie soundtracks. So that's a good uh, one. Anyone, anyone who's listened to the show, John, would know that you are the soundtrack man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I hope that's a good thing. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, no, no, that's a compliment. That's okay, a compliment. Good, good, good. good. And uh, I was actually just rereading re the Cameron Crowe article last night. <clears throat> and uh, what I didn't realize was he had this movie wrapped up by the end of 91. So, you know, they must have started shooting it in the beginning of 91 before Nirvana and Pearl Jam and everybody, you know, yeah. rode that grunge wave. And he said that the movie executives held it back. I mean, this movie should have come out in, let's say, the summer of 91 or spring wow. of 91. And they didn't know what to do with it. They wow. said, yeah, you got this little movie about Seattle, but who's going to care about these bands? And, you know, that summer is when... I remember first hearing Nirvana on, you know, our local college radio station. Yeah. And, uh, and they all just took off and he just happened, Cameron Crowe just happened to have the perfect timing. Yeah. Uh, when this came out, I think the movie was released in fall of 92. I think you might be right. I, um, okay. I'm going to make a little bit of confession here and, uh, I shouldn't do this, but I, I, I used to be a sinner. So I've mentioned that I went on one of those, Yan and I both went on Mormon missions around the same time, actually, early 90s. Uh, I think, Yan, you left in 91, right? Fall of 91? Yep, September 91 to yeah. September 93. So I left, uh, I think it was April of 92 to April of 94. 
And so this movie came out while we, and you may not know this, but Mormon missionaries for those two years are not allowed to listen to music, not secular music anyway. Well, at the time we were meeting with a young college kid and um, he had this and he would play it like, you know, he listened, we'd we'd catch up on what music was really popular at the time through him because he of course could listen to it. We couldn't. And sure. I heard really good things kind of happening in the background. We would be at his house meeting or talking or whatever, and it would be playing in the background. And I was thinking, this is so good. Well, I broke down and I bought it. And I listened to it for a few months on my mission when I wasn't supposed to. And I felt yep. really guilty about it. I eventually mailed it home because <laughs> I didn't want to offend God or anything. But uh, that's so I have this history with this soundtrack that it was uh, – you know, I, I had to confiscate it in. It was, uh, what's the word for, um, it was, um, uh, what's the word? Like contraband. It was contraband. You know what I mean? At a, at a time when it was, I wasn't supposed to be listening to that stuff. Anyway, don't think less of me, any Mormons. Well, well John, I, I think if God knew you were listening to Ritual by Soundgarden, he'd let that one slide. <laughs> I think you might be right. I like to think that the that God would... Uh, be okay with this. We'll see. Hopefully, yeah. we'll find out one yeah. day. That, that's and, better than my experience. I had somebody smoking pot in front of me. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, stuff like that happens a lot. I mean, you got you know you there's a lot of because we're not allowed to do any of that stuff. You know. Oops. So when you're talking to people who aren't aren't involved, you know, aren't in the church or whatever, they uh, you're subject to all kinds of things. So, Andy, tell us a little bit about you before we get into the recap section. Oh, gosh. Well, I uh, live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, actually northeast Minneapolis, because we're very uh, territorial here in Minneapolis. You have the northeast side, which I was uh, raised in. Actually, I live a mile from my, my parents' house. We don't, we don't get out too far. Mm. And uh, when I was growing up, this was kind of the old retired part of town. It was a lot of older people that lived here. The kids had moved out, gone to college, moved out. And it was uh, settled by the Polish and Italian and Ukrainian immigrants. So when I went to high school, you know, you had a lot of skis and Z's and, mm-hmm. and names. And what's happened now in the last, you know, 20 years is all those people have, you know, m- moved on and the houses have turned over this is now the hipster area mm-hmm. of minneapolis mm-hmm. so when i was growing up in the 80s the big place to live in town was uptown mm-hmm. section of minneapolis if you're familiar with prince i think mm-hmm. on the dirty mind album he talks about uptown or the song uptown that's right uh, so yeah so that was the hip place to be and that of course got to be too pricey the rents got too high so they looked over to the northeast side of town and we have all the artist galleries here now we have all these tap rooms Mm. and you know micro distilleries are popping up everywhere so uh you know a lot of people a lot of young 20 year old guys with beards and uh you know fedoras running around my neighborhood (laughs) <laughs> and wool caps in the summer. Wool caps, and yes. tight jeans. Yes. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Now, it's the Twin Cities because of St. Paul, but I've never, I don't think I've ever been there. Is St. Paul, like on, the, is that west of you? Uh, actually, it would be east. Oh. Um, yeah, and they're just across the Mississippi River from one another. Okay. Got it. Okay. I've always yep. wondered. Um, yes. Yeah, so Minneapolis is kind of the, you know, it's always kind of been the, uh, 
the older brother, you know, the older, cooler brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the St. Paul people have always kind of had to deal with the deal with that. Okay. Okay. But well, good. Uh, it's a great place to live. It's, uh, you know, except for the winters, which get to be very long. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we have Fortune 500 companies here, 3M, and, uh, well, my, my company, for the time being, the Mosaic Company, mm. we are a fertilizer uh, mining and refining and distribution company. Wow. Uh, although my headquarters is being... Uh, shipped off to florida here at some point and Ooh. my job status is uh up up in the air still so now is it gonna, gonna is it gonna be one of those things where it's either move to florida or you're out of a job uh well they haven't decided they're gonna move the company headquarters to florida because that's more where our operations are mm-hmm. but they haven't decided yet if they're gonna move the finance group mm. which i'm part of i work okay. in the treasury area so i keep track of all the money they haven't decided yet if they're going to leave that in minnesota because uh, they're not sure if they'd be able to find all the talent down mm. in the Tampa, Florida area. Mm. Uh, we're talking about 140 jobs that are located here. Wow. And to find that many people down in Florida uh, to attract that many people at once is a tall order. Yeah. Isn't work so, drama the worst? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I think, and I, this is probably wrong, but I always think I could probably be like going through a divorce and be in a better mood every day than if my job is affecting me negatively. And that's probably not true, but just it seems like nothing impacts my mood more than if things are bad at work. I, I sure. just, uh, I'm never more unhappy than when that's the case. You know what I mean? Totally. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've, I've, done the sec- I've done the second one of those. <laughs> That's true. What's worse, Graham? Or what's worse, worse, Yad? A divorce or a bad job? A uh, divorce. Okay. All right. Then I probably shouldn't talk. I'm lucky that and way. You, and you know what? Yeah, I know, John, you're involved in uh, sales and IT. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But yeah, what does Yan do? I don't know what Yan does for a living. So I am, a, right now, I'm a self-employed IT consultant, but I've done IT for 20-odd years. My preferred area is manufacturing, aerospace type stuff. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that's, I worked for eight years for Learjet. Mm. And uh, that's probably my favorite job ever. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, uh, maintaining computer equipment that maintained the factory floor or that, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, okay. oh, sure operations management that all, all that kind of stuff and uh, i actually start my next prison sentence next <laughs> late, next week sometime back at a bank you do oh you're going back to the yeah. bank yep okay did i say that prison sentence oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> you're the editor you can cut that out if you want <laughs> no i think that is. okay good 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 and audio production is just the hobby yep so I do this as a hobby. I've done some uh, video, some uh, trailers for video stuff for D- for DVDs for some friends, and uh, websites. I've done uh, so. I'm working on a website. I really need to get back to finishing that and get it getting it done. I've not done anything since my son's been here. So 
every uh, summer Yan has his son for six weeks. And uh, so we're coming up at the end of that six weeks now. And those for those six weeks, I we hardly even talk because he's off, you know, busy doing other things, understandably. But that's, sure. I think, why um, our relationship and our work relationship here works so well is because we, I, like I always say, we each do the thing that we're good at, you know. And um, I didn't intend necessarily when I started this to... Uh, kind of farm out the technical side of it to somebody else. I actually wanted somebody to show me how to do it, but it yep. just worked out. My a high school friend of mine, uh, Aaron Syrett, did the first few episodes with me, and he has a background in audio engineering. And by then, we were just up and running. And I thought, well, and Aaron couldn't do it anymore. And I thought, well, who do I know that's really techie and might think this is kind of fun? And so it was Jan. And so luckily, we've found this perfect kind of niche for ourselves where we, we, I think, I hope I'm speaking for you, Yan, we each enjoy the thing that we're doing, you know, and trying to build this thing. Oh, I love doing what I'm doing. I, yeah. would, I would rather be doing what I'm doing than being what you're doing, what you're doing with it. <laughs> and I feel the same, which is why this is perfect, you know. It's so, a great marriage. It is. It's a perfect yeah. marriage. Speaking of marriage, Andy, are you married? Do you have kids? Uh, yes, so I have been married, let's see here, it'll be 17 years that come this December ah. uh, to a wonderful lady named Alicia, Good. and we have a 15-year-old son, Parker, who uh, got his driver's permit here in the last month, mm. so we're now trying to get him out to uh, to drive, but he's still a little gun-shy. Mm. So. Okay, well, Good. So yes. we're all dads. Okay, good to know. So what's what, what's Minnesota like for driving? I know, I, I know, uh, in in Kansas where my son lives, if uh, if he was driving farm equipment, he could drive now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, they're a little lenient in the uh, the agricultural <laughs> areas. Uh, you know, we have t- a joke here in Minnesota. I'm sure. Uh, you know, you have it in Denver as well, but we have two seasons, winter and road construction. <laughs> so oh, right now, yeah. right now we have the Interstate 35 that runs from Minnesota straight down to Texas. And it connects the north or the north and south side of the Twin Cities together. And they're revamping that. So it's gone from... What is it? Four lanes each way down to two or three oh. while they're trying to make some, yeah, mm. some changes. And mm. uh, for people who would commute on that every day, I, I feel for them because that is not a drive I would want to make under normal circumstances, let alone when they've, you know, chopped a couple lanes down sure. for construction. Goodness. So, but, uh, but to go back to your question about Minnesota, uh, and Minnesota is a great place. You know, it's a very thriving arts community. If you look at all the the music that comes out of here, mm-hmm. it's incredible. I mean, the replacements. Uh, there's the punk band Husker Du from the early Absolutely. '80s. Yeah. D- Dylan, uh, the Jets, even. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> Still working on that uh, one. I'm gonna have that excellent. on soon. Yeah. Soul Asylum was another band. There you go. So, uh, so yeah, no, just a thriving art scene and. Uh, you know, we have the Timberwolves and the Vikings and the Twins. So mm-hmm. if you like sports, you know, you kind of, you're covered in the wild. Cool. Okay. Well, cool. All right. Um, now, before we begin the recap, I uh, we got to take a second here and hear from Yan because 
about two days after we recorded the last recap, to quote your favorite band, Screaming Trees, Ian, we nearly lost you. Could you tell everybody what happened? Uh, oh, sure. So after, after the the last last recap, actually while I was editing, so the couple of days before I re, we were this one, it was due to come out. So I play for for people that may you know I don't know if people uh, are aware of what futsal is. It's uh, it's played with a smaller ball than a regular soccer ball, football ball, and it doesn't doesn't bounce as much and it's kind of harder and so it focuses on keeping control uh, more foot control on the ground hmm. and I play every Wednesday night so I was, I was along for the, the Wednesday night games and I was running for a, a challenge for the ball ran flat out I was moving the ball was moving and I went to trap it and instead of trapping it, I stood on it. Mm. And bear in mind, we're playing indoors here, and the floor is concrete with a layer of vinyl over the top of it. Mm. And uh, so I stood on the ball. The ball went, moved. My, I moved with it. And as I was going down, I took somebody else out and then smashed my head off the concrete floor. Oh. And thought I was thought I was fine. Because I've had uh, I've had concussions before, so just monitored myself and then uh, continued playing for for the rest of the night. And I guess once the adrenaline worn off on my on my way home, I blacked out and totaled my car, wrote off my car, and didn't know anything about it. Luckily, I drive Swedish cars and they're built like tanks. <laughs> didn't you run into a pole or crash did, into a yeah. pole or something? Yeah, I did. I, yeah. I ran into a big, a fairly sizable street sign and basically uh, flattened it. And uh, n- no no injuries to me, but I was completely unconscious. Mm. Didn't, didn't wow. have a clue. Yeah. And you had to be revived. The, the police had to come. When they came and to uh, address the, the wreck, you had to be revived, right? Well, I did. No, I was awake by the time the police appeared. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Still scary. I mean, that could have gotten but, so much worse. Yeah. So if I'd been driving the the little Toyota that I had before that, <laughs> <laughs> there would have been a bit more mess. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So so uh, thankfully you have a Swedish car. Yeah. yeah. That could and, be a uh, lesson to everybody. Actually, yeah. So actually, while I was prep, while I was doing the editing on the last recap, uh, I actually I was still in heavy concussion symptoms, and it was really difficult to focus and get everything done. Yeah, I had to be bored for a week. I bet. Well, we're glad you made it. Obviously, we'd be lost without yeah. you, and that is scary. I'm so glad it didn't end up being worse than that. Yeah, um, uh, we're calling. We actually we're calling that that night a Wednesday night ambulance night. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how to put it. We've had a cup. We've uh, we're keeping the paramedics in business. Yeah, didn't you say other guys that you play with have gotten hurt, and you know the same ambulance or whatever has to come pick guys up every now and then. Yep. <laughs> maybe 
maybe futsal's not the best. I don't I don't know if everyone keeps getting hurt, but I'll leave that up to you to decide. It's it's fun. I mean, it's it really is fun, but just uh, <laughs> you know, head and concrete don't mix very no, well. No, <laughs> no, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Well, I'm glad you're doing better. Yeah, no kidding. Well, it took me about a week, and then you know the the fuzziness went away after about a week, and then I was able, then I was able to drive again. Good. Good. And guess guess what I have. <laughs> Yeah, you got a, the same car over again, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Good. Uh, okay, well, let's get into the recaps here. Um, for the, Now, we, as usual, we go back two months. And in this case, uh, two months ago was the Steve Ferris third birthday uh, episode from Mr. Mister. That one um, did really, really well. It kind of went viral a little bit. He got a hold of it. The Mr. Mr. fan group got a hold of it and um, shared it and everything like that. I think, I mean, I heard from a lot of people that were pretty happy with that, especially the KISS content, which just people can't get enough interesting KISS information. You know what I mean? It's just insatiable. And uh, so we really lucked out there on that one. Um, He gave a lot of really interesting information that I think, you know, even... People who don't care about Mr. Mister but would have thought that the kiss part at least was really fascinating. I know that some some kiss thing channel on YouTube cut like part of our interview in half and posted it. I think as their own, and that thing's been viewed like twenty thousand something times on YouTube. They don't they don't give any kind of attribution to us, but they left in our intro. So hopefully anyone hearing that thinks to go look at everything else we've done but anyway um you think that if they heard the first part they would go looking for the second part yeah you know, the rest of the interview exactly and they cut it in half they don't explain like <laughs> why he wasn't ultimately selected to be in the band and so there's all these comments like well why didn't he play with them what happened and it's like well if the idiots who stole our interview and put it up there would have kept the whole thing you would know you know but anyway Whatever. At least it's out there and it's getting heard. I was really proud of that one. It's funny. I um, uh, it took forever to get because I I guess probably because I was going after Richard Page primarily. I it took forever to uh, hear back from him or anyone in the Mister Mister camp. Once I finally was like, okay, well if Richard is going to be too difficult, I'll look around and find somebody else. I finally found Steve Ferris and he hopped on immediately. But what's funny is that he was, as you could tell. A real straight shooter, pretty unfiltered, you know. And after after the interview, though, he got so paranoid, and he was calling me like a couple of times a day, like, "Hey, I I'm just concerned that I may have said something. I don't want to offend Richard, but I also thought I sounded really good, so I don't want to ruin, you know, I don't want to lose <laughs> that aspect of it." And uh, he kept leaving it up to me. He would be like, "Well, you know, just make me sound good. Just you cut what you think needs to come out." And I'm I've had other people say that to me and it's always don't leave it up to me because I'll leave it alone. I like, you know, I want something uh, maybe potentially a little uh, controversial in there. So don't look to me to like clean up <laughs> after you. If you want something changed, you f- tell me what that is and we'll change it. Because I always tell every interview, if I say something you don't want to talk about, you tell me, we'll cut it out. And if you say something that you regret later, you tell me and we'll cut that out too. And, um, 
sometimes that comes back to bite us, by the way. But, Just uh, out of curiosity, what, what would you say would be the percentage of people that come back to you and say, hey, could you snip this part off? Or Yeah, not very many. Once in a while, it'll be like one thing. You know, it'll, uh, you know, I mentioned this one thing. Can you just cut that out? And that's not a big deal. I mean, I, I want them to feel good. You know, we're going to get more into this when we get to the Terrence Trent Darby portion, by the way. But, <laughs> um, but I want I them to a be, feeling. Yes. I want them to be happy with what's out there. I want them to feel honored. That's the whole point of this. You know, I'm not a muckraker. I'm trying to get honor their career. So, but it's the ones who want to micromanage that process. Now, Steve was great about it, and he understood, but he was just really scared. And so I had I ended up sending him – he wanted – here's another issue. A lot of people want to hear the final version with like a week in advance so that they can decide how they feel about it. And I don't like to do that. Number one, I don't want to put – I don't want to make Yan have to get something done that far in advance. And number two, it's it's my interview. It's ours now. You know, you agreed – if you if there was something you wanted cut out, you can always tell me and we'll do it. But don't make us do this some special thing for you weeks in advance so that you can decide how you feel. I don't I don't want that. This needs to be a little spontaneous. But I sent him the file raw, unedited, and he came back to us with this very detailed, you know, at 10 minutes and 51 seconds, I say this, will you cut that part out? So Ultimately, it turned out fine, and he was happy with it, and it kind of went viral, and he turned out to be a great guy. He comes to Denver. He lives in Nebraska, but he comes to Denver once in a while, so we're going to go to dinner one of these times. But anyway, that one turned yeah, that one turned out pretty good. And, and the thought was that he thought he would offend Richard Page, mm-hmm. so in case they ever did get a reunion gig going yeah. with the full band, that uh, maybe he would have said something that would have, uh, you know, excluded him from right. that reunion. And I should say, in case anyone wonders, I didn't notice he was absolutely, even the parts that he thought were disrespectful or worried about were totally respectful. Um, and you can understand, I mean, these guys, the four of them, they still have a working agreement going. They've got to, they've got to sort out royalties for the rest of their lives, you know, and potential reunions and who wrote this or that and everything. So I completely get it. And he, it's been well documented. It was nothing you know, unique to our podcast that he and Richard butting heads was something that sort of led to the end of the band. So he didn't say anything in our interview that was shocking or wasn't something I already knew about, but it worried him because he has a lot of respect for Richard and they're, they have a working, you know, pseudo friendship and he didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And I totally get it. But so again, let me stress here very clearly. I didn't think he said anything that was, would have remotely hurt Richard's feelings, but he was concerned um, just for the nature of everyone's relationship. And so there were some parts that he wanted to cut out, which is completely fine with me, you know? And he was happy with how he turned out. He knows he's a character. He knows he says funny things and stuff like that. And so he wanted to, you know, he wanted to maintain a lot of that. It was great. Sure. Now, um, I remember when you uh, mentioned on Facebook that you were going to be interviewing someone from Mr. Mister, and you said, does anyone have any questions? Um, there was one I was going to send to you, but just didn't at the last minute. I remember reading in the songwriter Jimmy Webb's autobiography, mm. uh, Jimmy Webb would be an awesome guest for you, yeah. if you've seen the uh, the Wrecking Crew documentary. Absolutely, and I've heard him on other podcasts. He's great. Yep. Yeah, you just turned 
just turn the recorder on and mm-hmm. maybe he would ask a couple questions and that would be the <laughs> it. Right. But in his autobiography, he talked about how in the 80s he was still, you know, a little uh, boozing it up mm-hmm. and how he ran into the guys from Mr. Mister. And uh, they were curious. They said, hey, you know, Jimmy Webb, we're huge fans of yours. You know, we love all your songs. What, what do you think of our work? And I guess, you know, Jimmy in his inebriated state kind of ripped him a new one saying, really? well, you know, this this Broken Wings song's pretty good, but you stole from the Beatles. And they go, what? What do you mean? And he goes, yeah, this take this Broken Wing and learn to fly again thing, which is off of uh, Blackbird. I never thought of that. So I guess they just, you know, after, you know, he went away, they were just hanging, you know, their heads hanging low going, oh my God, we we stole from the Beatles. I don't (laughs) think it was intentional, but the fact that here they meet their songwriting idol and he kind of, you know, gives them the business. (laughs) Wow. So, but I I didn't know if that was uh, something they would want to, you know, would want to talk about. Honestly, Steve should have, and he hears this a lot, should have like his own radio show. He is full of stories and there were countless that we didn't even get to. So I may have him on again sometime because he uh, he could be doing this himself. He's so full of excellent stories. I liked him a lot. Um, oh, yeah. uh, let's see. Okay. Yeah. And by the way, if I, you chime in whenever you want, if you have something, you know, uh, you want to say about anything. Yeah. I, I thought he was excellent. I mean, he, he had so much, he had plenty to say, and he mm-hmm. was. Just, I thought he was a really nice guy. He came across as a really nice guy. I thought so too, uh, and a little Ted Nugenty, which is interesting. <laughs> In this day and age, you know, to proudly be the of the Ted Nugent stripe—that's a—that's a ballsy move right there. Anyway, good for him. Yep. Okay, next up was yeah, E.G. Daly. I mean, you, oh. Hold on, just a second. Yeah, I mean, you're you're totally right there. I mean, whatever you. Whatever people think of Ted, as a you know, his politics or whatever, the guy's an awesome guitarist. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and so oh, for Steve, Steve to to respect him and come across, you know, I thought yeah. that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, then the second career that he's made for himself yeah. is quite interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Governments call him to come in and design their wetlands or their hunting lands or whatever, you know, just fascinating that he's got that, this whole other second career that is, I mean, he's a pretty important guy travels all over the Midwest consulting with people on this. That is fascinating. Sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I liked him a lot. Okay. EG daily. So I'll tell you about EG real quick. I, um, I've wanted her on all along. Um, by the way, how hot is E.G. Daly? Good <laughs> gosh. Oh well, my. what's funny is I haven't seen her. I don't remember her except from Pee-wee's Big yeah. Adventure yeah. where they kind of, you know, tomboyed her up a little. So true. And uh, and when I when I Googled her, even at today, I'm like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be careful. If your wife's going to look over your shoulder while you Google image E.G. <laughs> Daly, you might have some explaining to do. So, I, uh, and in fact, I... the Valley Girl photo yes. show. Oh my gosh, yes. I've heard her do interviews and st- Well, I I don't follow Rugrats, but I know that that's primarily what she gets asked about out there. And so, I, when I contacted her, and I should say again, thank you to Steve Cooper of Cooper Talk, 
He, um, I had tried contacting EG for years and never got anywhere. And he had her email address and gave it to me. And I, that worked. And I made it very clear with her that I really just wanted to, I'm sure you get asked about Rugrats and everything else. I really just want to focus on your music career. That's what we're going to, that's what we do here. I thought that she would appreciate that, you know, and think that that was a little different. And uh, I had said, you know, we usually go 45 minutes to an hour and, um, and to carve out that much time. She said, great. Well, when I called her on Skype, um, she was like, you know, John, I think, can we cut this short? I only really have about a half hour. And uh, I'm like, yeah, sure, you know, whatever. I'll do my best to kind of cram in everything I want to touch on. And at the beginning of the interview, she barely remembered a lot of the things that I was asking her about, you know, singing with Phil Oakey, singing with um, Cruzados. Um, I, and, and I'm here, I'm like trying to really honor and respect her whole music career. And I felt like she, for whatever reason, in, in that moment, was kind of dismissive of me or the interview or what we were trying to do. And um, I didn't know for sure if she really truly didn't remember things or if she was just saying that because she didn't want to talk for very long, you know? But thankfully, about halfway through, and we left it in there, she kind of warms up to the fact, warms up to it all. And uh, she even said, I noticed when she posted it on her Facebook feed and everything, that this really took her by surprise. She gets interviewed a lot. She They're mostly really boring. Gets asked the, the same things. And thankfully that we were we had pulled up some stuff that was unique and different and really tried to focus on her and her music career. And it ended up being something she was really happy with. So there's been a lot of times where I almost wish that I could do that one over again in case the EG that wants to be there could be there the whole time and if that would be make any difference you know um and it was interesting i told her when it was going to come out and i don't know if she kept forgetting or what but every week leading up to it hey has it come out yet hey will you be sure and tell me when it comes out and it's like yeah i tell everybody when their episode comes out believe me we will tell you you know absolutely so it she turned out to be so sweet and nice um after coming off a little sort of standoffish at first. Um, but I'm glad she warmed up. Well, John, I found it hilarious. I think it was the Phil Oakey song mm-hmm. um, that she had to go, like you could hear her in the background going to YouTube to play it. She's like, was I on that? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. And I suppose, you know, these singers in the 80s, she was just going from gig to gig. And, uh, you know, we might find something off of the summer school soundtrack to be, you know, uh, you know, personal to us. But to her, it was just another gig. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that, too. Um, I thought that was really shocked. Plus, one thing that Yan did a really good job of cutting out is that her dogs were going crazy the whole time. And her phone kept ringing and her Alexa kept going off. And things and packages kept getting, you know, brought to the front door, and so it, uh, the whole thing. I was just like, "Is this even working? Do you care about any of this?" But luckily, she once she warmed up, she was in. It was great. She's actually quite the riot, I think. Yeah, I actually watched a, uh, a bit on YouTube when she was on her ex's show. Yeah. Oh my goodness, it is so funny. Yeah, I mean that that voice. Well, I considered a little a little throaty, but yeah. in a good yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. And then and then uh, he's he's talking about 
something. She gives them the 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 Tommy Pickle style voice, and I was oh. It was great. Dying. I'll have to send you guys the link. I think you did. John, I've think. seen it. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. Andy, I'll send you the link to it. It is hilarious. She, but, um... uh, oh, go ahead. If anybody hasn't seen her edition in The Voice, it's incredible. So I used to watch The Voice back at that time, and that's probably one of the best edition, auditions I've seen on it. Really? Yeah. Wow. See, I don't watch that show, so I couldn't... I didn't have a lot to add to that part of her story. Yeah, I used to. I, mean, I used to watch it back then, and what, what I think would be, it would have been funny was for her to go and sing on one of her own songs. Mm-hmm. Mind over matter was was pretty decent back in yeah. back in the day. Totally. And I would I would love to see someone that's been out of music business for a while that's had a hit, and that people have forgotten about go back in and do that song or something like that on any of those talent shows and then watch the penny drop you mentioned that yeah and that's actually kind of an interesting idea i think if you i think you could do that where you had some kind of singing competition and you brought people back like eg um but you have to do it in a really classy way not in a like surreal life jokey you know for entertainment kind of way it's got to be real you could bring back somebody like i mean half the people we've had on our show would qualify for this you know go uh-huh. go back and give them like a second chance and make it really classy and professional it, there, there's an idea there i think that sounds really well, interesting that was yep. the original premise behind the voice was to to give people that had a, a shot a, a, a chance and you look at uh do you, either of you remember Chris Mann, who was early mm. in the early in the in the Voice? He'd been cla- he'd been trained classically trained, and he'd had a shot at trying to break into the business, and just never gotten really gotten anywhere. And he was using the Voice as a, mm. a second tool, mm. and that's that's the original premise of that. I would love to see somebody that had a hit. Yeah, come be back for their second chance. Do it on on yeah. a show like that. Yeah, you know, I think about ten years ago we had a show like that. Maybe it was just like a summer replacement, John, where they would have, uh, you know, someone from the early '90s come out and they would sing like a contemporary song. Are you thinking yeah. about "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time"? There we go. Yeah, that was amazing. I think that was a British import. Um, I think that was I think that aired in Britain and they brought it over here as a summer replacement. I think it went six weeks. And yeah, each week it was like Wang, our buddies Wang Chung were on there, Vanilla Ice, Irene Cara. They would do their hit and then they would do something contemporary and then someone would win. I thought that too. You're right, Andy. Something like that. You know, it's funny for a show that was only on a couple of weeks that gets I hear that show get referenced all the time. I think that made a bigger impact than people realize. They could redo something like that very easily. I think. Yeah, and you'd get the uh, you know the nostalgia aspect yeah. of it. Yeah, I think it would be a great idea. We gotta. There's so much we could do here, Yan. We gotta. Get, <laughs> we, we gotta figure this out, man. We gotta. We gotta expand. We gotta make these people happen again. Um, you know, one more thing about EG. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she mentioned, of course, Giorgio Moroder, who, yeah. you know, his name's popped up a few times in some yeah. of these episodes. I know, uh, oh gosh, the guy from Animotion. Yeah, Paul Engelman. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. He also mentioned, you know, I think Giorgio Moroder kind of gets forgotten about sometimes, which, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, he was 
you know, he was touching everything. I mean, I, he had the Midas touch. He did. And I personally think he's one of the most important and revolutionary producers ever. Um, and I think other people would say, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people think of just him and Donna Summer, I Feel Love, and think that, yeah. you know, that one song was revolutionary. But I don't know that they go beyond his association with Donna Summer and see what else he's done with, you know, we bring up Phil Oakey and E.G. Daly and Paul Engelman, but there's... There's just a lot of stuff, not to mention the people like producer Keith Forsey, who produced Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me, and early Billy sure. Idol, Rebel Yell, and stuff like that. Keith came from Giorgio's sort of stable of people, of workers. And so, um, and I mean, Giorgio's stuff was so good for so long. I, I agree with you. I think he's so important. And, um, you know, I think he's respected. I don't know if people quite look beyond his work with Donna Summer. And they should. There's so much good stuff out there. Sure. Um, okay. Now, I, let's go to Jackie Clary. And I. Uh, we can be brief about this one um, only because I don't... So, okay. This feeds a bigger question. I, and you, Andy, being you know a loyal listener of ours, let me ask you. How do you feel about the bonus episodes that we put out? Sometimes they're just me putting them out. Do you feel like we put out too much content? Um, are you okay with it? Do you wish they were different, oh, more or less? What do you think? Uh, I think you guys are doing a great job, and I look forward to every time a Hustle podcast feed pops into my uh, whatever I used. Really? <laughs> uh, okay. Podcast. Oh, yeah. No, you guys, uh, you do a great job, John. Okay, good. Uh, I've, you know, I would not give... Let, I actually have quite a few notes here about Jackie. Oh, good. Yeah. Jackie's episode. I found it to be fascinating. Good. If not only for your, the greatest question ever uttered on the Hustle podcast, Kurt Loder, does he smell funny? Oh, my gosh. I stopped and found that, or, you know, played that back when I was listening to this at work. And I went, what did he just say? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I'm just, he's such a, I just imagine him, like, in a, you know, in a smoking jacket. And, like, a, you know, with a glass of scotch and, a, you know, just chain smoking while he, I imagine it all in his hair and in his skin, you know. And, uh, but I don't know if he's really like that. But I, anyway. <laughs> Stale so cigarettes and coffee. Yeah, that kind of thing, you know. Well, good. I uh, I thought she would be really fascinating. I mean, I don't know anyone else who's worked for MTV and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and she's somebody who has maintained a career in the music industry, just not as a musician. And that's kind of the point of the podcast. And so I thought, hopefully, other people will think that this her career and her life is as interesting as I think it it is. You know. And except for the George Michael story, it, it kind of made me sad to think that working at MTV in the whatever it was, the early mid '90s, you know, it, it sounded like it was just a gig, like yeah. it's just a job going to the office. You know, it wasn't. Uh, at least she didn't paint out any, uh, you know, crazy stories of people, you know, snorting blow off their yeah. desk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not a Casablanca Records uh, story. No, and I had that exact same thought. That that job seems like a lot of other jobs and it's long hours and she wouldn't talk specifically about money, which I understand. But I was a little bummed because that's what I 
you know, let's imagine, I don't know for sure, but let's imagine she was making 30, 35 grand a year, maybe, you know, working 10 hour days at MTV, living in Manhattan. How does anyone do that? You know what I mean? How is that possible without the help of parents or without commuting, you know, from New Jersey or something like that? And that, so that's why I really wanted to kind of focus on that aspect of her career, because I thought these are the stakes here, folks. This is what you have to do and be willing to put up with if you want to pursue that kind of life, you know? Yeah, and, hustle. Yeah, you got to hustle. And so I thought, I, I thought, let's really illustrate. And But you're right. Other than that, I mean, she's working on production stuff she's kind of more behind the scenes she probably works in a cubicle it's not this glamorous sexy thing rubbing shoulders with rock stars it's work you know every day just like the rest of us so and i found the uh, the, the rock and roll rock and roll hall of fame stories to be interesting about how uh, you know she would take the you know kids with cancer on mm-hmm. a behind the stage tour and show the dads, you know, slash his hat. Yeah. So those are some really cool stories. I thought so too. I'll tell you a little, so a little story. I've never met Jackie in person, but we have a mutual friend, uh, one of my good friends, Ryan Razan. And Ryan ha- and has been telling me about her and her about me for years. And she and I talked on the phone once around 2001. And at the time I had just graduated from college and I had just gotten laid off from a job and I was staying at my parents' house. And this was during her period working at the Rock Hall. And she and I chatted for a while, and um, she was telling me these stories about Jan Wenner. Some of them she shared. She was telling me John Norris was gay, which was mind-blowing to me. I didn't know that 17 <laughs> years ago. And uh, just, you know, I'm just, I'm just salivating at all of her stories and hearing all this stuff. And as a guy who's unemployed in his parents' house, I'm just so... I'm feeling so bad about myself, you know, so emasculated and and stupid that this person has this thing that I covet so much. And um, I think we talked for a a while. She was great. And I think I called her maybe a couple weeks later and asked about jobs because I needed one. And you got, we've all been there, guys. There's, It's the worst. You know what I mean? When you, you need a job and someone is doing the thing that you want to do and you have to ask them about it. It was so emasculating. And, uh, of course, there was nothing. And she doesn't know me. So she, if she, even if there was, she's not going to go to bat for me. She doesn't know me. Anyway, so I have to say it felt good that 17 years later we could talk. And this time I had something cool going on where I didn't before, you know, that she thought was interesting. And so it's like, you know, you wait around long enough and things fix themselves sometimes. And so I didn't have to carry around this. Uh, I was, it was embarrassing and I felt stupid when I talked to her and all this stuff. I didn't have to feel that way anymore because we're adults now and we have lives and children and things happen. And I've got a cool po- podcast that she thinks is cool. And that means a lot to me. And so anyway, it kind of came full circle. Yes. Yeah, so to answer your question about the bonus episodes, love the bonus episodes, okay. love this episode to hear what, you know, someone who's working, you know, the kind of the behind the scenes in the music and uh, entertainment business was, this was interesting. Like I said, to realize working MTV is still working in an office mm-hmm. job. It is. It is. And she gives a shout out to Gene Pitney. Yeah. You love that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, good. Well, good. 
Um, Jane Pitney's good. He is good. Again. She didn't know who he was. Didn't she have to work on like a thing for him for the rock? Uh, uh, I, I think that's when she was talking about going through the micro. Yeah. The microfiche. Yeah, that's right. The microfiche. That's right. <laughs> Classic. Uh, speaking of Gene, Gene Pitney, I remember remember him with Mal- Mark Almond, who can't sing. Yeah. Gene Pitney and Mark Almond did something together? Yeah. Really? Oh my yeah. gosh, I'm going to have to look that up. What an odd pairing. Oh, uh, but, but, yeah. Something's got a hold of my heart, I think, yep. was the song. That is correct. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, oh gosh, early 90s, late 80s, yeah. somewhere in there. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. You okay, got well. Yeah, and you're going to have to sprinkle in a little bit of that song right here to let everyone know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So, to, to let them know that Mark Allen can't sing. <laughs> really? I, I still laugh. I, I like some Mark Allman. Yeah. Um, and and uh, guys, to let you know, I am a huge, huge 1960s fan. Really? So okay. when she said Gene Pitney, I was like, there's the writer of Hello, Mary Lou by Ricky Nelson. And uh, he wrote, uh, he's a rebel and he'll never be any good. Yeah. Um, one of those 60s girl groups. I think it was the Crystals or Shondells. Um, plus, he had his own songs. He had a huge hit with Only Love Can uh, Break a Heart, mm-hmm. and It Hurts to Be in Love. I mean, he was all over the uh, you know, the uh, Billboard charts in the early mid-60s, even you know, after the British Invasion stuff was hit. Wow. Look at you, schooling everybody on Gene Pitney. That's, That's right. I would... John and yeah, I would, well, Yan obviously knows some Gene Pitney, but John, I would uh, I would take a look on Spotify for some Gene Pitney's okay. greatest hits. I mean, I know a lot of the songs you just mentioned, but I've never I don't think I've ever gone and listened to Gene Pitney on my own or deep dive. It's one of those guys you would know, but yeah. maybe you don't know. Oh, that's Gene Pitney's scene. I'm sure that's it. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Okay. Good. I have a homework assignment. I'll go do some Gene See Pitney research. Done? Yeah. See what you've done. Ricky? <laughs> that's okay this is good um okay now let's talk about rupert hine for a minute that's one of i think one of my favorites that we've done um as i've mentioned several times he just every name i threw at him he had a really fascinating story to tell about all those people all that stuff about tina turner and the, the you know that whole private dancer album was not intended initially as like this big comeback it was just an album to capitalize on a weird single that was doing pretty well in the uk and then it explodes all that stuff was so fascinating to me but i gotta tell you there were we may end up putting out some kind of like deleted scenes episode of him because there were three sections of our of our interview that i cut out um First of all, and I did it because as, as it was, it was just shy of three hours long. And I was afraid if people don't care about Rupert Hine, even though I think this is really good, they're going to be annoyed. This is just going on and on and on. But I cut out three parts. And I, let me just apologize to anyone who really wanted to hear these things. Uh, first of all, at, when we talked about the Better Off Dead soundtrack, there are there are one or two songs on the soundtrack by a band called Think Man, which is like a side project of his. He was kind of doing a band called Think Man at the time. And I asked him about that. 
and he explained it for eight or nine minutes and it just wasn't that interesting to me personally. Um, it would have been if it had been two minutes or three minutes. It wasn't that he went on too long. I just thought, boy, we're really getting in the weeds here. I don't know if everyone will think this is as interesting or as up to par with all the other stuff we've talked about. So I made the executive decision to cut that part out. Uh, then in the early 90s, he produced two albums by two actresses in the same year, Mila Jovovich and Katie Segal. And I asked him about that. And I thought that was really interesting. But afterwards, I questioned whether I would be the only one who would think that was interesting and that uh, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should trim the fat a little bit. So I opted to cut that part out. And then at the very end of the, of the interview, we're wrapping up and uh, we've covered everything. And I say something like, you know, I think that that's everything that I had on my list. If you can think, you know, unless you can think of a story that I didn't ask you about that you want to tell. And he talked about Bob Geldof for eight or nine minutes. And that was really interesting too, but I worried that at that point, after three hours, and we're getting ready to wrap up here and say, you know, thank you and goodbye, uh, one more story at that mom moment might annoy people. And so I opted to cut that one out too. Um, now, come to find out, so many people who contacted me afterwards were like, why didn't you ask about this super duper obscure thing that Rupert Hine did, you know? <laughs> And so come to find out, I think his fans would have appreciated all three of those stories and I probably didn't need to worry. But to me, I just wanted to keep it chugging along. And as it is, I think it's like a perfect three hour chunk of music information, you know, but I have these three other stories that we may have to put out at some point as like a deleted scene. I don't know. There's your Friday bonus content. That's right. <laughs> next time we need another bonus episode we will put out the rupert hine deleted scenes um or are you a rupert hine fan or did you care at all about that one andy you know uh i'll be honest i did not know the name okay but obviously anyone who's listened to music in the last you know 35 years has heard something he's touched right um you know i was i was a fan and am a fan of the fix but i guess i never really paid attention to who mm. produced them so to know that he did, you know, Save by Zero and One Thing Leads to the Another, yeah. uh, you know, all huge hits that I grew up loving. You know, to what was funny, John, is I had listened to this episode, and then I think the next day I was on a plane trip to Florida, and I had the video in the headrest in front of me, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I watched the movie Fletch, which <laughs> is one of my favorite sound, uh, 80s yes, soundtracks. Absolutely. And... The fix are in there, a letter to both sides. That's right. So as I'm watching the credits, it gets to, you know, all the music, and there it is, a letter to both sides by the fix, produced by Rupert Hine. I go, no. wait a minute. <laughs> I love I that. I just you know, heard the podcast yesterday. Yes, I love that. I love that. You know, once we've sort of re, we've kind of catapulted some of these names back into people's consciousness that they then see them or are more aware of them or, you know, seek them out or whatever. That makes me so happy. I love that that happened. Um, yeah, and was that one an especially, because it was so long, was it any more or less hard to produce or put together? I don't think so. I mean, I think I've said before, uh, you know, when I initially got started doing this, I started out about 
10 minutes of clean audio per hour of, of work. Mm-hmm. And I'm usually around 30 minutes of audio per clean, 30 minutes of clean audio per hour of work right now. So, you know, unless mm-hmm. somebody's really, really heavily uh, stutter or, mm-hmm. you know, lots of ums and mm-hmm. uhs and it's not too bad. Good. Okay. And I, I worry sometimes, Jan, because I tried to tighten up a lot of my interviews so that there's less kind of stuff for you to go in and cut out. But you always do it anyway, which I'm so I'm grateful for. But on the other hand, I just I'm like, I don't want you. I want you to work less. I want you to I want you to have less to do because I want you to, you know, enjoy your life. I don't want you to feel like you got a ton to do. So anyway, know that I'm always trying to be conscientious of you. Yeah. Well, my, my, my take on that is, you know, when I want, when we put something out, I want the, the guest to feel like we made them sound mm. really good. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, I appreciate that you do that. It wouldn't work if, it, if you didn't. So um, anyway. Okay, let's talk about Tarkun Gotch real quick. Um, that one, I, that, so the, the interview that you heard was actually the second interview that came out. So when my wife and I were vacationing in Hawaii at the beginning of February, she says to me, why don't you track someone? Why, you know, you love movie soundtracks. Why don't you talk to somebody who actually did one? And I thought, well, my favorite soundtrack of all time is some kind of wonderful who did the soundtrack to some kind of wonderful. And I saw his name and that's not a name. That's not a common name. And so it's, I remember that I'd seen that name before and it's in Planes, Trains and Automobiles and she's having a baby and all this other stuff, Ferris Bueller. And um, I thought, well, I struck gold on this. You know, this guy couldn't be more attached to the things that matter in my life if he tried. So I sought him out. He agreed to come on. Um, We did an interview and it it kind of, it got really messed up. First of all, he, I called him on his cell phone, which is an international number, but he happened to be at the O'Hare Airport in Chicago. And he was, it was in between flights and we, there was a miscommunication about when we were gonna start. And so we started late and we went about 35 minutes before he had to hop off and get on another flight. And I wondered if because um, it was an international number, but I was calling him in the States, there was a very weird delay in our when, you know, I would say something and there would be two seconds before it would actually hit him and then he would reply. So anyway, we would end up talking over each other a lot with a lot of, or with a lot of weird gaps. And uh, so I was not happy with how it turned out. And then I go back and listen. So I held on to it for a couple of months because I thought, I don't know how I feel about this. And eventually I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get this ready. And I was going to put it out as a bonus because it was shorter. And... Um, I go back and listen, and then I can't hear my half of the conversation. I can only hear his half of the conversation. That's what happened with uh, the Trash Can Sinatra's episode, too. Somehow, the mutant, I don't know if it's me or what. I probably didn't plug in a microphone the right way, or I don't know what happened, but it got messed up. So I was going to go back and recreate my half of the conversation, which is always really annoying. It's very unnatural. And um, I start to do it, and I think... I wonder if he would just talk to me again and we could do this better, you know, not with, without the delays, without the rush time. I mentioned it to him and he said, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it again. So we did. And it turned out great. But I will say that that is one of the most difficult interviews that I've ever done. 
And you can probably imagine why. And it's because every speck of his career is something that I would want to spend a couple hours talking about, you know? <laughs> I mean, every one of those movies. I want to go, I know those movies like I know my children, practically. I could go through every every song on every soundtrack. What was it like? How did, did you meet them? How did this happen? And then... I mean, the guy manages Brian Johnson of ACDC. That alone could be an o- another hour, you know? I mean, and... And XTC. English, XTC, English Beat, the Dream Academy. It just goes on and on and on. And I just... It was all I could do to contain it to an hour of things that I thought might be the highlights. So anyway, I... That one was actually really difficult. But um, I enjoyed it. I almost enjoyed it too much, you know? I don't know stuff like that. Does that do? Are, I don't know if the times that we kind of veer off of a musician and more of like a music business type. Do you do you find value in those interviews too, Andy? Oh well, you're talking to uh, behind the scenes music business geek. Like okay. I love hearing stories like that. Okay, and, good. You know, when I'm reading in my personal life, uh, I'm reading books. Uh, you know. Uh, Appetite for self-destruction, <laughs> you know, talk about the rise of Napster and all those uh, hitmen, about yes, uh, there you go. The, the dark world of DJ Paola. I mean, those are the kind of things I'm reading. Yeah. So to have Tarquin on and, and to get the perspective on the movie business as well. Mm-hmm. Now, see, I know him by a different name. What? He dated Kelly LeBrock. Yeah. So I know him by the name of Lucky Bastard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. I think Tark is, you know, also known as. Yes. And yes. Uh, I did click on his Facebook page and I saw that Kelly LeBrock or someone claimed to be Kelly uh-huh. LeBrock uh, wished him a happy birthday, something to that effect. I noticed uh, that too. Not too long ago. Yeah. But uh, no, I really enjoyed the story. And uh, John, I uh, I have a, a John Candy, John Hughes story, uh, Hughes story for you. Oh, good. So when you know he was talking about all those John Hughes movies, I remember I used to work with a guy named Bill, and Bill had lived in Winnetka, Illinois, which is you know the northern mm-hmm. north suburb of Chicago, where a lot of John Hughes films were shot um and Mm -hmm. bill was the manager at the local bank and he was there while they were filming uncle buck and Mm. i think there's either a scene in uncle buck where they're at his bank or they were using his bank as um you know like a staging area for the crew Mm -hmm. and one of the production people came up to bill and they say you know could we use your office uh for catering and Bill was like, well, sure, you know, uh, but he thought it was kind of strange because he's like, well, we have an employee break room, mm-hmm. you know, with tables and everything. Why wouldn't they just put all the food for the crew and the cast in there? Yeah. So about an hour later, uh, they start bringing all the food into his office and, you know, he walks out and then he sees another group of people bringing food into their break room. And he goes to the production guy and says, well, you're bringing stuff into our break room. I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, why do you need my office? They said, Oh, well, the food that's going to the break rooms for the cast and crew, the stuff going into your office is just for John Candy. What? And it was a spread like you would not believe, I guess. So I guess, you know, John Candy had huge appetites for life and, uh, you know, catering on the set. Oh, my gosh. Bill thought that all the uh, food going into his office was to feed 
the rest of the Everybody. people. No, yeah. that was John Candy. No way. Wow. <laughs> that so. is such great trivia. Oh my <laughs> gosh. That is cool. Thank you for saying that. Oh, I love that story. That is great. Yeah. Wow. And the huge soundtracks that, you know, that you're mm-hmm. referencing. I mean, every one of them, yeah. you know, there is, you know, there's great songs, in all of them, but I think each one of them has like a, just a gem. Mm-hmm. And I had forgotten about one and that's why I loved your show. Um, the, uh, which one is it? The, uh, she's having a baby, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Kate Bush, this Kate woman's Bush. work. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I had totally forgotten about that song until, you know, Yan put the music in there yeah. and how great of a song is that? It's one of the best. One of the most emotionally impactful songs I can think of ever, you know? Um, yeah, that alone, again, that alone deserves like its own episode practically. You know what I mean? It, uh, it was so hard to narrow it down. So good. I'm glad you feel me on all that John Hughes stuff. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And you had a story of relating to this. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that episode was was amazing we could probably go back to him multiple times and get multiple you know multiple good stories but uh, one of my friends here in here in scotland and i'll i'll give a, a shout out to him chris slamp he said that's probably the the pretty and pink soundtrack not the movie so much uh, but the soundtrack's probably one of the most influential records of his life yeah yeah i've this heard is, that yeah yeah. And I think we'll probably hear that from quite a lot of people. Yeah. Now, I uh, I should say, because I've heard some people, some people have asked me why I didn't ask him more about Pretty in Pink. I didn't know that he actually worked on Pretty in Pink. Um, I don't believe, because, I mean, all I have to go off of is like his IMDb page, you know, or allmusic.com or whatever. I didn't know that he had anything to do with Pretty in Pink. And so that's why I didn't have any questions prepared to get deep on that one. I wish that I had. Um, otherwise, we would have talked about that one too. But so anyway, yeah, fascinating stuff. I thought he was great. Um, okay, let me see here. All right, r- the next one up would be Richie. Oh, by the way, I, w- I should say, um, I just, along these same lines, I'm pretty pressed. These. I got to admit, these left of center ones that aren't necessarily musicians, but they're people was, that we all know, but probably don't, have forgotten about. I get more, almost more excited about those than I do some of the actual musical guests. And yesterday I locked in an interview with a guy who I'll just say is a talking head on a music program that you might have seen. So <laughs> I'll leave it at that. It could be really obscure. You might have no idea what I'm talking about, or you might know exactly who I'm talking about. You're and interviewing John Norris from MTV News. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie put in a good word for me. And yes, I'm going to be interviewing John Norris. No, close. No, uh, but something like that. So um, I've got a lot of interviews coming up in the next week or two, but uh, that one, I'll let you know. I'm really excited about that one. I'm feeling good about it. Um, and let the home audience at home know that uh, John is so secretive about his guests. You know, he'll drop a hint at the end of an episode. You know, oh, we have, you know, new wave 80s English artists for the next couple of weeks. We've had this Google Doc running for a couple of weeks now. And John would only put the artist who had just played 
or you just posted the link. So I didn't even know who we were going to be talking about these last, you know, three episodes. So I'm like, wow, he's even keeping it from me, man. <laughs> I really debated about that one. That's so funny you mentioned that. I debated, and then I thought, no, I got to stick to this. I can't. I don't want it, anyone. I, I don't want anyone to see too deeply behind the curtain. I'm weird that way. I know. I know. I'm weird that the way. The could hire you and be rest assured, John. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. You're keeping all the secrets. Good. Uh, I like that. It makes me feel powerful. So anyway, uh, next up is Richie Fontana. I don't have a ton to say about Richie other than he was just a really nice guy. I do find um, that whenever I talk to New Yorkers, the word that I keep coming back to is nonplussed. Nothing seems like a really big deal to them, you know? It's always like, eh, and then this happened, and that was okay, you know? I figured it out. I got an interview coming up in two or three weeks um, that I've been hanging on to for almost six months, by the way, with a classic rock artist who is like that. A New Yorker that's, eh, yeah, you know, whatever. We work it out. It's just, they don't get their feathers ruffled over much of anything, you know? But I thought Richie was a really nice guy. I'm a little bummed I had timed the release of that one because I think I mentioned Eric Miller of the Pods and Sods uh, podcast and I and BJ Cramp are doing this series on Billy Squire. We're doing all of Billy Squire's ap- albums. And I timed Rich- the release of Richie because I thought Eric was going to be starting our Billy Squire rundown at about the same time. And I wanted them to be sort of similar in case anyone who had hadn't heard of us but was hearing about us through the pods and sods would then go to the hustle and see oh here's an interview with richie fontana the guy we just talked about in that other one anyway but it hasn't happened yet i don't know when that's ever coming out yeah i don't know if that one sparks any interesting stories from anyone there wasn't much he was just a really nice guy i do think it's really fascinating that he's been with lydia chris going back to kiss <laughs> and people's insatiable appetite for kiss information. He's been Lydia Chris's boyfriend for many years. Uh, I got to be careful. I started these th- doing these things because I wanted to kind of shed light on some of the behind the scenes stories that happen. But then I got to remember that I talk, I don't have much of a filter. And so I got to be careful <laughs> what, what I say to people anyway. Okay. Uh, Terrence Trent Darby. You guys want to get into Who? it? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me correct you on that. He is only known as Sananda Matreya. Oh, Sananda Matreya. Yes, yes. 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 The Italian artist. Ex- <laughs> exactly. Yes. I hear he does a mean karaoke version of Wishing Well. It's funny you say that because uh, my impression is that Sananda Matreya doesn't go near anything by Terrence Trent Darby. <laughs> Until recently. Um, yeah. So uh, let's start with you, Andy. What did you think of the Sananda Matreya episode? Uh, well, when you post your little picture teasers on Tuesday mornings, I, uh, I saw who it was and I went, oh, that's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. And boy, was it a was it a ride? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I have to be honest, I lost track of, you know, the artist formerly known as Terrence Trent Darby after... Uh, what was it? The delicate single in mm-hmm. gosh, summer of '93, maybe. Yep. And he kind of disappeared off the off the face of the earth. And I, you know, you know those first few albums, good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of forgot about him. And then the I know you've talked that you've been looking to to get him on for mm-hmm. a couple years now, and 
Boy, he does not disappoint. I thought your Atlanta Miles episode was interesting. <laughs> this, yeah. I, 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 John, I wrote down notes. I don't even know where you'd want to begin. But, uh, you know, uh-huh. the three to four attempts on his life, he yes. didn't really expose on that. No. Um, I, don't, I don't know what organization or Illuminati are looking to take out Sananda, <laughs> but I'd be curious to hear more about that. <laughs> and the fact that he doesn't work for the money, he works with the money, I right. think was the direct quote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I did look him up on Facebook and, uh, you know, it looks like he's, uh, you know, he's killing it as far as uh, artistic wise in yeah. Italy. Uh, I wish him all, you know, the best of luck and success. He's a, he's a talented guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really don't know much more to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And do you have any thoughts before I give oh, you the yeah. backstory? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised we actually got to talk to him because yeah. you know, the, the impression I get, you know, from you and I talking is that he really doesn't do much media at all. Mm-hmm. And it did get a little deep at times, but there were some really, really interesting stuff in there. And mm-hmm. I thought he was really, you know, he was quite thoughtful. He was, pretty open mm-hmm. I thought and mm-hmm. um, I really actually like some of his new stuff off, off, especially off of the the oh, yeah, the what's Prometheus it? Prometheus and Pandora yep that's album. it the Pr- yeah. Prometheus and Pandora some of the stuff on there is fantastic yeah yeah did you have something Andy Oh, I was just say. I mean, again, extremely talented guy, but it's kind of where that artistic, you know, side kind of gets overshadowed by some of his statements. You know, I remember what was it, the Rolling Stone interview mm-hmm. years ago, where he talked about his debut being better than Sgt. Pepper, mm-hmm. and you know, he was. Uh, well, I think he even said what was the the quote that there was only room for Prince and Michael. He yep. didn't quite fit in, and until one of them left. <laughs> Yep. Yep. That's, Which is uh, odd because both of them are gone. No, they're both gone. Exactly. Yep. Um, okay. So let me let me fill you guys in on this. First of all, I noticed the exact same thing about the attempts on his life. I that one was so hard to control, um, and I I wanted to. I felt like he left so many provocative statements kind of just floating in the air that, and I could have picked any one of them, like the attempts on his life thing. And then we would have gone down some other road for a half hour that may or may not have made any sense, may or may not have even been true. I probably wouldn't have been able to say anything or get a word in edgewise. You know what I mean? And I just oh, yeah. thought if I, I've got to be really careful here what avenues I choose to pursue with this guy because it may, I may, my head might explode. You know, everybody's <laughs> might explode. Who knows what we're going to get here? And is it good or is it just? Exhausting. I mean, I was it was exhausting for me. Now, I will say I meant what I said. Normally, when I do these interviews, I do them. I listen back to them once before we put them out, and I send Yan the list of like, cut this part out, add this song here, play this thing here, tighten this up, whatever. And then I don't. And then I hear it once it comes out. But in his case, I had to listen to it like four times before it ever came out for various reasons. I'll explain in a second. And after, eventually, it started to make more sense. He really was just using more 
and bigger words than were necessary to say a lot of the same things that our other guests have said. He just did it in his own way. So let me, okay, let me go back to the beginning. He was one of the first people I ever reached out to three years ago. It was after like episode four or five. And I got a message from him on Facebook saying, everything goes through my press person, Margarita. I emailed Margarita. She wanted to see a list of questions ahead of time. He is by now, he is so far the only guest that has ever asked for that. Um, once in a while, people will say, well, what are we going to talk about? Or, you know, I don't want to talk about this or that, which is perfectly fine. He wanted, they wanted a list. And back then, when we first started this, it was, I wanted to talk about all those things. The Sergeant Pepper quote, the changing of the name. Where did you go? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? What's the reasoning for all this? You know, do you, are you still even making a living as a musician? Why are you so incognito? And they basically shot down every question that I sent. And, uh, and so I've checked in periodically since then. And it's always been, you know, he's working on a new album. He's too busy right now. He's getting ready for a new tour. But then I would see an interview come out on like the Huffington, Huffington Post or some European magazine or whatever. And I'll think, well, he's clearly giving his time to somebody. It's just not me, you know. And um, so I kind of let it left it alone. Well, then a couple of months ago, he posted on Facebook that he was going on this tour and that he was going to start telling stories about his survival. And that sounded different to me. I thought, well, maybe here's a guy who's ready to kind of open up and start talking about that stuff a little bit more. So I tried again. And again, Margarita wanted to see a list of questions. And this time I knew better. And so I sent her a different list. And I thought, he's not going to want to talk about the past or at least dwell on it. So let's let him talk about the new stuff that he wants to talk about. And I'll sprinkle in the past when and when and if I can, you know. And uh, there were some things that I that they shut down. I wasn't able I wasn't allowed to ask about in excess, unfortunately. Um and then there was, cause he was temporarily the, he took over for Michael Hutchins temporarily afterwards and it didn't work out. And then, um, you know, he doesn't like to talk about, he, you can, I could not refer to him as Terrence Trent Darby at any point in the interview. <laughs> and, um, and you know, no dwelling on the past, that kind of thing. I can allude to it and I could mention some of those songs, but I can't dwell there and I can't refer to them as being songs by Terrence. So, uh, anyway, so I eventually we lined it up and my thinking was I'm going to kick off as I often do this, the story of seeing him in concert in Salt Lake City. And that will put us on a path to just talk about music and maybe take it down a notch. I had read and heard other interviews with him and they were all like the one that we had. And I thought maybe this is the persona he gets into when he has to be defensive when he, cause everyone's probably coming at him with like, what are you doing? Why, where did Terrence Trent Darby go? You know? And he probably gets into this defensive. I mean, he's clearly kind of built an Island for himself, you know, and sure. he's the ruler of that Island and he makes the rules. And I thought, well, if that's where, if that's his defensive pose, I'm going to take a different stance. So he doesn't feel like he has to do that. Let's let him feel relaxed and we can just talk about music and fun things, you know? But as you noticed, he went, he started before I even asked the first question. And then it was a half hour before I even got to set, you know, share my seeing him in concert 1988 story. And that was, I thought, the most interesting part of the whole interview because he kind of let his guard down a little bit, talking about Amazon Mormon women, you know, 
banging his brains out before the concert or whatever. And I thought, no, here we go. This is what I wanted to get into. Yes, you know. Again, so, another artist who's gone through Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, has has left a, a little better than they arrived. That's right. Man, people love to party in Salt Lake. Who knew? So, yeah, he uh, so that was, I thought, probably the best part. And then eventually when he starts saying how, you know, he's going to start merging some old Terrence Trent Darby songs with the new stuff. And I thought, great, we're finally getting there. Well, um, anyway, it, it was not the kind of interview I wanted. It was the interview I was afraid we were going to have. I'm glad that we did it. it um, it's in some ways, selfishly, I feel like I'm kind of building a resume here. And I like, you know, Verdeen White was a very difficult interview, but I got to say, I talked to Verdeen White, you know, and my feeling, and this is a lot of people ask this sometimes, like, why do we not edit out the parts? Why did we not cut the whole first part of the Terrence Trent Darby interview off since it didn't have to do with music? My feeling is always, look, I provide a stage for these people to be themselves. And if they come off annoying, that's their problem. That's not my problem. You know, this is who they are. And this is, I'm giving, I'm hopefully giving you an opportunity to show yourself in your best light. And if this is what you consider to be your best light, then great. Then that's what the world gets to hear. You know, um, it's up to us to decide how we feel about that. And that's how, and that's how I felt about, ter- about Sananda, I should say. Anyway, after the fact, they wanted to get the final version well in advance I tried to kind of block it from Yan. I knew Nicholas was in town. I didn't want him to feel like he had too much work to do. So I said, well, that's probably not going to happen. I went, I sent them the interview. They made cuts. Yan did a, thank you, Yan, did a final version a day or two ahead of time, sent that to them. They edited that as well, which I've never, no one's ever done that. And I was so nervous that they would cut out all the good stuff. But I got to be honest, whatever version they sent me that was the final version didn't sound any different. I didn't recognize anything missing. So I was pretty glad that it was done and it was done to their specifications. And these are all the hoops that we go through just so that Sananda will share that episode with his fans. That's the whole reason, you know, otherwise they don't know that it's out there and we could just do it the way we want to do it, but we go through these hoops so that the guest feels good enough to share it with their fans. And uh, the last thing they had an issue with was when I posted it, I said episode, whatever it was, Sonata Matreya, and then in parentheses, AKA Terrence Trent Darby. And sure enough, they made me change that before they would share it with their fans. (laughs) So I thought I at least could get away with that. I was allowed to put Terrence Trent Darby in the uh, description of the episode and play a couple of songs, but I was not allowed to put it in the name. So anyway, that's the uh, Sananda Matreya story. <laughs> yeah, I actually got that done for the for the Friday before. You know, yeah, you know, be, being self-employed and not in a contract at the, at the time, I had a bit of extra time on my hands, and I was able to get that done. Yeah, I'm glad you did. And it, it worked out great. So, um, okay. I think that's everything. If I remember some other stuff about Sananda, oh, I'll say one, Yeah. One last thing. I'm wondering if Sananda, Sananda Matreya is friends with Chris Gaines, who is the <laughs> alter ego of Garth Brooks. <laughs> 
Now, do those guys hang out? I think they do, actually. I think Sananda, okay. I think they, in fact, I think they play futsal on Wednesday nights. Uh, oh. Yeah, it's, uh, That's it's crazy. That's a dangerous game, I hear. Yes. Oh, by the way, one other thing I forgot to mention, a little story. So during the course of the whole interview, when he was talking about, you know, Prince and Michael Jackson, I kept thinking, I wonder how he feels about Lenny Kravitz. Because Lenny Kravitz was came a little bit after Terrence Trent Darby, but almost seemed to like, it was almost like he was an extension of where Terrence Trent Darby was going at the time in the late 80s, you know, I thought anyway. And so my no, thinking that's was... Good, that's a good point. Yeah, and so my thinking was, well, you know, there is Michael and Prince, but eventually Lenny Kravitz got up there. You could have got up there too, you know. How do you feel about Lenny Kravitz? It would have, have you guys ever collaborated? I think that would make a lot of sense. That might be really interesting. And as you could tell, I was having a hard time getting a word in edgewise most of the time on there. So all I did was eventually, when he was talking about merging the old and the new, I said, well, that's going to be great. You can go out there and you can show that you're a little bit of Prince. There's some Michael Jackson here. There's some Lenny Kravitz here. There's some, and I mentioned it in passing, almost because I just wanted to establish that I had been thinking about it. Well, I guess that made him mad because afterwards he was like, do you, you need to study your timeline. Do you not know that I, I came before Lenny Kravitz? And I was like, well, and this was not to me directly. This was an email he sent to Margarita that was sent to me. And I was like, absolutely. I, that's why I mentioned it. I assume, you know, if Lenny to me was an extension of what you were doing beforehand, I wondered if you two had ever worked together. So anyway, he, uh, I, I think there might be, I think part of what fed this like running away into kind of oblivion for him, something that may have had to do with Lenny Kravitz. I think he may have seen the rise of Lenny Kravitz and saw that that's where he should have been. Now there may be more to it than that. There may be something way more detailed than that, but there is some issue behind the scenes with Lenny Kravitz. I think. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Anyway. Okay. We should hurry these along. I feel like I'm, I, I hope these are interesting for people. I don't know, but, um, I think it is. Anyway, John Brewer, uh, the director of the Beside Bowie documentary. Of course, as a Bowie person, I thought that was really interesting. And his the per, his publicist is the same person that lined up the Fran Strine of Hired Gun documentary interview that we did. And so, and I had just seen Beside Bowie, and she emailed me a couple of days later saying, "Are you interested in all in talking with John?" I jumped at it. Um, I would like to get him back on another time to talk about all the other stuff he's done because I you can tell that guy just is full of stories but I thought yeah if we can promote help promote the soundtrack and get people to see the movie absolutely I'd be happy to do that so I hope that that was a good one I don't know if maybe it only matters to people who care about uh, Bowie I have noticed that the bonus episodes are the downloads are never quite as much as the regular Tuesday episodes but so maybe people don't care as much or they're just not in the habit of listening i don't know what do you think andy uh you know i'm uh, to be honest i'm not a huge bowie fan not that i don't like him i just have never gone deep on bowie i know the hits i love the hits um but uh, i didn't know that much about him mm. so uh i found it interesting to hear you know the the morrissey stories yeah. and then <laughs> and then to kind of hear of um oh my gosh i'm totally spacing on uh the the 
the guy who the documentary's about, uh, the terrorist. Mick Ronson. Thank you. Mick, yeah. Mick Ronson. Again, there's a name I've always seen reference to in books, but I guess I didn't really know, you know, what encompassed his career. And to hear all the stuff he played on or had uh, a hand in was quite interesting. Yeah. Good. I like that episode. I thought it was great. And just for any, in case people are curious how we decide to do this, I like keeping Tuesdays as like, like I've said before, I want, I try to make these like the definitive story of this person, you know, a, a musician or a music related person that we know. This is like a career spanning. uh, That's what Tuesdays are for. And then Fridays, the bonuses, stuff like this are usually more promotional in nature. You know, they're somebody talking about a new album or a new movie like the Jan Wenner documentary, or maybe it's something just shorter or it's me appearing on something else or whatever. Um, so th- that's my thinking when I think of stuff like this. Um, you were saying I, you're not a Morrissey fan, are you, Yan? Not really. Yeah. Have no, you ever been? Not, re- not really. Okay. And these these days he's more of an annoyance than an artist. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. And uh, I like you know I find it interesting that he he didn't you know he didn't like Bowie. I, He's not even in Boys League, not even close. <laughs> well, that just so, shocks me that any alternative British artist, especially of the 80s, would have a problem with Bowie. Bowie is like what set the template for all those people. That really shocks me. Oh, totally. Me. Yeah. I. That's like saying you're a Christian and you have a problem with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, you know? <laughs> It, it was interesting, though, to hear uh, John Brewer's take on the Bad Company. Yes, uh, I know Brian right? Howe, which uh, which I have to tell you, I didn't uh, my um, I didn't know that Brian Howe was the Bad Company voice. Like mm-hmm. I always just assumed in the eighties and nineties that was Paul Rogers, mm-hmm. and I never knew otherwise. Yeah. So to hear that episode with Brian Howe was fascinating. And now Bob Lefsetz just had on Paul Rogers a couple weeks ago really? and asked him the question about, well, what do you think about, you know, Bad Company's time without you? And Paul Rogers wasn't, uh, he didn't come out and really be a jerk about it, but he let it know that he doesn't really think much of that mm-hmm. time period, mm-hmm. I, I would say, is the impression I was left with. Yeah. Which is too bad because I think they have some great, so- Bad Company had some great songs in that era. I totally agree. I, and I those oohs and ahs. Yes, there you go. <laughs> That's it. My favorite. Um, I look. I can understand. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So I can I can understand why John Brewer said what he said. You know, if he wants, you know, if he wanted Paul Rogers, he had to skip over Brian. Mm-hmm. Sure. It seems like Paul really just was not very. Uh, yeah. Uh, complimentary of Brian's time, Brian's yeah. work. I agree. And I understand that. I mean, Bad Company are a pretty legendary band, and that was a specific chapter of their history um, that doesn't include Paul. And he shouldn't have to. I can understand if he doesn't want to sing those songs or whatever. But at least the other two guys, Mick and Simon, I mean, Brian Howe kept you guys afloat during years that would have been. Uh, very lean and very dark otherwise. And so um, I don't see a, it's like the Doobie brothers having the Tom Johnson period and the Michael McDonald period, you know, I mean, it's all success and everything. Doobie brothers are out there today, 
thanks to other people carrying the load for certain periods of a career. So you can be angry or, you know, uh, standoffish about Brian Howe, but he helped, you know, carry the flag for a little while at least, you know? They cashed the checks. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly right. They didn't have a problem spending any of the money Brian Howe made them during that period. So... I, I would be curious, though, uh, John, to have him back when this Chuck Berry documentary comes out that he was referring yeah, to. I know. I thought. I mean, too. talk about one of the most complicated people in rock mm. and roll of all time. Yeah. I mean, Chuck Berry blows my mind with just uh, you know, kind of his own attempts at derailing his success. Mm-hmm. Didn't you get the impression though that John isn't necessarily going to go there, or at least not in any depth? Well, the fact that, you know, he asked or he says he talked to the wife about, uh, you know, Chuck's uh, philandering on the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be curious to see how much is in there. Yeah. Have you seen the uh, full cut of Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll? Uh, no, but I've heard about it. Okay. They they put out a four disc series really? years ago, which I bought. Ooh. It is the, I mean, I thought Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll was already a great documentary. Uh-huh. Uh, the behind the scenes stuff. John is worth getting just to hear that. No way. And, uh, you know, they interviewed little Richard and the Everly brothers and Jerry Lee Lewis and, you know, played it in the movie. Well, on the extended DVD cut, they play those full interviews. Really? And, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis is even crazier than I thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I, granted, I think he might've had a little, you know, Southern comfort or Jack uh-huh. Daniels in him. When he was speaking, but uh, for those uh, for those of you who love the '50s uh, early rock and roll period, I'd ex- really uh, uh, say go out there and get. Yeah. I think it's like a four disc set. Yeah. Um, okay. And it is well worth the money. Let me tell you. Ooh, nice. Okay, I got to see this. Yeah, I just I wonder, you know, like for I mean, wasn't he arrested for putting in you know dual sided mirrors in his restaurant so he could watch girls go to the bathroom? Yeah. Uh, and videotape. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, when I lived in the Bay area, I worked for a radio station briefly writing news copy. And one of the DJs there was telling me stories about how Chuck Berry liked to get pooped on. He was just had this whole thing with like feces and just disgusting. But look, that's out there. I mean, if you're going to tell the full Chuck Berry story, let's not sugarcoat things. The guy was complicated and he has a lot of weird stuff like that in his history. You know what I mean? And he, uh, he bought an amusement park or an abandoned amusement park outside of St. Louis and named it Berryland. And when they showed the behind the scenes stuff on this DVD, I mean, it just looks like a dump. I mean, really? it's, you know, different buildings and they, oh. you know, kind of look like they're all patched work together and nothing really looks like it's really, you know, of any sound <laughs> building materials. I'm not surprised. And the fact that, uh, you know, John says, well, Chuck died, you know, he left 200 million to his family. And I'm like, well, it didn't show back in 1986 <laughs> when they recorded this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you could have spent a little bit of that on your amusement park there, Barry Land. Yes. Wow. And, and Chuck also, you know, he wore the clothes from the 1970s. And I don't think he ever changed his wardrobe. Yeah, I think you're right. So. Yeah. That guy. Um, yeah, that'll be interesting. I, I'm going to have to try and maybe maintain a relationship there with John and see if we can bring him back for some more stories. Um, okay, only a couple left. Eddie McDonald of The Alarm. Um, I don't have much to say about that one other than it's one of my favorites. I thought it turned out really well. I was really happy with it. 
And thankfully it went viral, as I always say, because we end up talking to people who are who were members in bands that maybe aren't in the band anymore, like The Cure or Squeeze or whatever. Um, normally the fans of the band, the main Cure fans, never find out that there's an interview with Lowell out there that they might find interesting. And so that's always my the bane of my existence is how to get this in front of the people that will care. And luckily, the Alarm fan community got a hold of Eddie's episode and it went viral kind of within it. And I am so grateful. And there were so many really good positive responses. Um, I think he heard from a lot of people that loved it. And uh, now I may end up being able to talk to Mike Peters about uh, the possibility of what's the deal with a reunion, you know? And um, so we'll see. I don't know for sure. I'm not making any promises. I don't know if that'll ever happen, but I wouldn't mind if it did. And uh, anyway, I feel like we were able to kind of remind people of how great the alarm were and to get this reunion conversation started. Uh, maybe alarm fans talk about that stuff all the time. I don't know, but it seemed to kind of raise it to a fever pitch there for a little while. And I'm really grateful for that. That's why we do this so that fans, you know, have a little, little delicious piece of something to chew on for a while. You know, these guys are talking to my favorite band and they're asking things I would want to ask. So I'm just, I'm glad when it takes hold like it should. And that one seemed to do that. Do you care about the alarm at all, Andy? You know, I have to admit, uh, The Alarm is always a band I've known about, but I've never gone deep. You know, I know mm-hmm. 68 Guns and uh, The Stand mm-hmm. were probably the, the stuff that jumped out that you know, I knew. Uh, but I found it to be an interesting uh, interview. Good. So, Good. Uh, no, okay. it's definitely something I, you know, I want to go deeper on Spotify here with Good. listening to their stuff. So, um, yeah, good episode. Good. Okay. They have a near-perfect Greatest Hits CD called Standards that... Um, it, I mean, if you don't do anything else, that's you get that, and it's chock full of great, great songs. Let me ask you something, and this goes out to—I'm always curious if people, because do you if if a guest pops up and you're not interested, do you delete the episode? And you don't have to. Don't worry about our feelings. I'm honestly curious. I'm probably the wrong guy to ask, John, because oh, I've really? uh, I've listened. You've done what 170 of these somewhere. Uh-huh. So I think we're coming up on like 195. Oh my. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's about 15 I have not listened to, and those are probably ones from the beginning. Yeah. You know, I just haven't gotten around to listening to the taco episode yet. Uh. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That's a good one, though. But, He's uh, a good guy. But no, like I said, I, I think you guys do a great job, even if it's an artist that I haven't heard of. I mean, I can't admit that I knew who the trash can Sinatras were, but I'll sit and listen to it and go, oh, that's an interesting story. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm interested more in the story versus, you know, if you have on a name or yeah. a band that I'm, you know, wanting to hear. Okay. Good. So. Good. Cause I, you know, I listen to Mark Marin, and if he has someone on that I'm not interested in, I don't, I just delete it. You know, that's true for most of the podcasts I subscribe to. So I understand um, if people do that, I'm just curious, you know, do people listen to everything? Do they, have we earned, you know, people's trust that if it's a band they don't know, they listen anyway, or are they still, um, you know, choosy about it? And I'm okay either way. I'm just curious, you know, so good. Nope, nope. I'm, uh, I'm definitely down with the Hustle podcast, and I agree if Marin has someone on there and I read the description, I don't know the name, and I go, uh, this doesn't sound that great. I delete good. some of those. Good. Um, but I think you've you've built a good brand here. Good, John. And so good. You should be proud good. of it. 
So you're saying we're better than Mark Marin? Uh, I don't want to go there, but if if Ken Mills is the pod father, John and Yan, you guys are like the pod nephew, nephews. I will take which that. Is, which is a pretty I'll good compliment. That. I will absolutely take that. That's great. Shout, shout out to Ken Mills. Absolutely, Ken Mills. Love him. Uh, good. Okay. Yan, do you have anything to say about Eddie McDonald? Oh, I, I was really impressed with that. I mean, I hadn't really listened to much of the Alarm stuff, but uh, I knew of Mike Pierce through mm-hmm. his time in Big Country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I was really impressed with how he came across. I was impressed with what he had to say. Yeah. Definitely a great episode. Good. I thought so, too. Good, good. Okay, we'll uh, quickly run through the permanent record one and two. Most of the questions I had about permanent record are the one that I've already asked. Again, I um, I worry sometimes that when I put these episodes out of me appearing on other things, that it's, it's sometimes it that it comes across as like narcissistic or selfish or whatever. And I hope everyone knows that it's absolutely not why I do it. I do it because they're usually really interesting conversations about music. And I assume that we all like to have conversations about music. And so it's just a conversation starter. You know, it's just people talking about music. Maybe you'll like it. Maybe you won't. Maybe even if you don't, that's what's fun is like the debate, you know, the getting in there, getting really disagreeing is just as much fun as agreeing when you're talking about music, you know? So I just put that stuff out there, whether it's, Suburban Underground or Glory Days Radio, which we're going to have another Glory Days Radio uh, next week, I believe. Um, I just I put them out there because I assume people like hearing people debate music. So hopefully, hopefully that's yeah. the case. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think all the uh, your side projects that you've gone on to these other podcasts, John. Yeah. I think the only one that was a little different was uh, I think you were on with like Jethro and. <laughs> Billy Bob, I forget the name of that one. Um, oh, Which gosh. one? It was about a year ago. It was two guys, and they kind of had southern accents, and they were just kind of uh, they were interviewing you. I think maybe it was after the Nashville podcast uh, expo oh. last year. I cannot. I, I happened to find it when I did a search. Um, Jethro and but, Billy Bob. <laughs> it was like two two Southern gentlemen, and they had John, and you're talking about '80s soundtracks, and oh, um, that one, yeah, Big Bushy, and I don't, Big Bushy, that one, yeah, you. that one. So yeah. sorry, I think Jethro's a better <laughs> no, name than Big. Big I, I think you nailed it, actually. Yeah, no, that's right. I, uh, yeah, I. They were just starting out, and they were kind enough to ask me to come on, and. They let me pick the topic and I got to play EG Daily and a few other things. Yep. And, um, yep. Sometimes I don't listen to a lot of their other episodes because they're they're a little Jethro for me. A lot of a little more right wing that I'm comfortable with. A lot of uh, I don't cursing doesn't offend me or anything like that. But if it's just yes. all the time or late on all the time, then it's like I don't need to hear that. So anyway, I really like Nate. He's one of the nicest people in the world. But um I don't always listen to his show. I, maybe I should. Sorry, Nate, if you're listening. That's so funny that you remember that. I can't believe you even said that. Um, okay, Wang Chung. Now, um, let me quickly say something real quick about Wang Chung before I forget. First of all, I thought Jack was great. He was very much an English gentleman. Very, you know, very buttoned up, very in control, 
um, super nice, uh, just very British to me. But I was really glad. I, tr I As I'm asking the questions about everybody have fun tonight, I'm thinking, he's probably heard this a billion times. <laughs> and so I was trying my very best to kind of take it in some different, slightly different directions. I hope that I did. Hope I didn't dwell too long on just that one song. I wanted to kind of incorporate everything. Uh, afterwards, he sent me an email that he was very appreciative. He forgot to mention a couple of things that he wanted me to mention for him. Number one, uh, they are in the process of remastering all of their albums, including their first as Huang Chung and their last Taser Up that came out a few years ago. It's in the process of being remastered with deluxe editions, lots of artwork and um, liner notes written by he and Nick, him and Nick, whatever the correct grammar is on that. And uh, so he wanted everyone to know that that is being worked on right now and will probably come out later this year, I believe. And then the other thing that he mentioned was he was embarrassed that when he was talking about the band Little Feet, he referred to the drummer as Richie Havens. We all know who Richie Havens is, when he meant to say Richie Hayward. And I remember at the time thinking, because he was talking about how funky Richie Havens was, and I thought, boy, I'd never thought of Richie Havens as being funky. <laughs> I mean, I know he's black. Is that just what we're calling everybody who's black? Funky? Because he doesn't strike me as funky, but okay. But uh, yes, he was talking about Richie Hayward from Little Feet. But I'm sure Richie Havens can get down with the best of them as well. I'm sure he could too. I'm sure he could. I just never thought of his music as being funky. So anyway, um, and a huge I, thanks to Martin Page, former guest, for making that happen. Martin, I had always wanted to talk to Jack specifically because the last two times I've seen him in concert, he hasn't been there, and there's been no explanation that he wouldn't be there or anything. And I thought that was a little weird. And but I didn't want to. I didn't know how to reach out to them and say that I wanted to talk to Jack specifically about that without it maybe causing a problem or ruffling a feather or something like that. So I. I was never able to get in contact with them. And so when Martin contacted me on his own and said, would you be interested in talking with Jack? It was like, yes, you are reading my mind. That is exactly what I want to do. Thank you for that. So anyway, it worked out perfectly. Thank you to Martin Page. Nice. You know, I was surprised you didn't, uh, you didn't get his thoughts on that uh, Cheers episode with Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> do uh, I know Michael. what you're talking about? Oh my God. So... I was a huge Cheers fan. When uh -huh. Frazier was going to marry Lilith, the guys from Cheers were going to throw him a bachelor party. And Frazier shows up and he says, well, there was a, a little song on the radio tonight I heard on the way over here. And it kind of sums up the evening. And he goes into this dramatic reading of, everybody have fun tonight. Everybody Wang Chung tonight. <laughs> In that perfect Kelsey Grammer voice. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, that Frasier pompous yes. yeah. Oh, persona. man. I didn't know. I didn't watch enough tears. Oh. It was an episode from about 1986. So I'll let it slide, John. Oh, that, that is that, great. Uh, not up on your Cheers episodes I'm from sorry. 32 I years ago. study up. Hey, hey, are you telling me you didn't watch Cheers? I've seen Cheers. Oh, yeah. I love, I love Cheers. That I don't know if I saw that episode or if I did. It didn't jump out at me i was gonna say i don't know who you are now <laughs> <laughs> yes i do lo i love cheers yeah i wasn't uh, obsessive about it shoot Sorry. that was a that was a friday night favorite here oh really it was a thursday night favorite here wasn't it wasn't it uh 
Wasn't yes, it, uh, it was a Cosby Show, yeah. Family Ties, Cheers, Night Court, and uh, Saint Elsewhere, and then it went into L.A. Law. Ooh, yes, my mom watched L.A. Law. I like that show. Yes, I, I spent way too much time watching TV as a kid. Joe. No, uh, how old are you, Andy? Uh, I will be. What am I? I'll be forty-four in September. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I know yeah. you just had a birthday. Yeah, I just turned 45 two days ago. And so, yes, we're the same. And yeah, and you're you're 46 now, right? No, 47. Oh, are you? Okay, so you're too yep. older. Um, so we're all the same generation, same age. Yeah. I, I'm embarrassed how much I still remember about things like Falcon Crest and, <laughs> and, and Dynasty and Dallas. And all that stuff that my mom watched. Landing. Yes. Oh my gosh. A little bit of trivia. When we, when my family moved to England, how I know Yan in 1991, one of the few American TV shows that was on was uh, Night uh, uh, Knots Landing. And every Monday <laughs> afternoon, they would play old reruns of Knots Landing. I never missed an episode, and I didn't. That wasn't a show I cared about until I moved to England and was so desperate for. American content that I watched Knott's Landing every Monday without fail. In fact, I remember one week it was preempted because Freddie Mercury died and I love Freddie Mercury, but I was so pissed that I was not going to get my Knott's Landing fix that week. (laughs) That's how bad it was. Nice. Yeah. Well, that you just knocked off one of my questions that I had for our next segment. So that's actually, that's a good thing. Okay. Uh, Okay. So let's wrap this up. Unless you had something about Wang Chung. Uh, yeah, or Andy, I guess either of you. I'm good. It was a good episode. I've always wanted to know more about them, so uh, really liked it. Okay, good. Anything from I, you, Yan? Yeah? yeah, actually, I was glad we got him because, yeah. you know, after having Martin Page and having one of the the two worst two worst films <laughs> right. ever, getting one of the other ones. That's right. <laughs> we cover all bases here. You know, yeah. we don't discriminate. Yes. Uh, and you know what's funny? They're not, they're not that bad of a song. No, I mean, that's the thing. And I was trying to explain that to Jack. These songs just in pop culture become punching bags because of things like Kelsey Grant, things like Cheers. It just becomes fun to laugh at them. But uh, and maybe they're annoying for a while because they're overplayed for you know the years right after. But eventually they become nostalgic and you like them and they're fun and you don't care as much. And um, so I try to kind of tap into that with these people, you know, then I'm sure he likes it when he sees his royalty statements. Exactly. That that, I hope that people catch the subtext when I talk to people. I mean, I didn't come right out and say that a little bit, but yeah, the guy doesn't have to tour. He can do this strange jazz music that he likes on the side because he makes plenty of money having co-written that song. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, guys doing fine. Lastly, Tony Lewis with the outfield. Um, I, while it was happening, I didn't think it was anything special. I um, I really try to, you know, elevate every one of these into something that's a little more, you know, interesting or juicy or whatever. And um, I didn't feel like we quite got there with that one. But afterwards, after I listened to the final thing, I liked it a lot. He, at the end of the day, Tony is just a very regular guy, you know? He's a regular kind of blue-collar blue guy that really loved playing music with his best friend and had this incredible voice and his song his best buddy wrote the best songs and together they made magic and it probably he's probably not the like 
rock star type guy. He's just someone who just enjoyed what he was doing with his friend, you know? And um, he was blessed with this really amazing voice. One of our listeners, Steve Harold, commented, uh, contacted us the other day. I always like it when people share their stories with me about how they got turned on to somebody we've had on the show. And I had to reply to him. I hated the outfield when they first came out. Hated them. Oh, really? Hated the outfield. I thought Tony had the most annoying, whiny, <laughs> wimpy voice. I hated that voice. And I remember when Voices of Babylon came out, I thought that was the worst song I had ever heard. And one of my best buddies, Scott Mertlick, had the tape. And I remember being in his room and being like, you bought this? He's like, it's actually not that bad. I was like, these guys suck. What? And then, so I just hated the outfield back in the day. Then about 15 years ago, Voices of Babylon comes on VH1 Classic. And I'm thinking, this actually isn't that bad. And it might have been like a two for Tuesday or something because the next song was another one. And uh, suddenly I heard it for the first time with fresh ears. And uh, now I think they're one of the greatest bands ever. They're like up there for me as like an all-timer. I think they're amazing. So anyway, you never know. Yeah, definitely one of the most uh, distinguished or distinctive 80s band voices. I mean... Anything that comes on by them, you hear it first three seconds. You're like, boom, outfield. Yeah. yeah. And then I did go out to Spotify and played, what is it? A playlist, I think it was called. Oh, yeah. Is that their, that's their greatest hits ago? album. Mm-hmm. The greatest, okay. And uh, just loved everything I heard. Yeah. And yeah. then was playing some of their newer stuff. And it's like, he has not lost a beat at all. Not at all. Not at all. And I said this before, I love their last two albums. The first one, the First of the last two, Anytime Now, is not available on iTunes. Um, I can't remember if it's on Spotify. Maybe it's not. Anyway, I bought it when it came out. It was great. And Replay that came out a few years ago is excellent. His solo album is also excellent. There, It is missing John Spinks's songwriting and harmony vocals, but Tony's got such a great voice and he writes great music too. So anyway... I've heard from so many people who it re it, you know it, it revitalized their interest in the outfield and that is exactly what I love to hear. So I'm glad it did that. Um, are you an outfield fan at all, Yan? Uh, I really you know the I did like the the open the opener that we did. Mm-hmm. Your love. Yeah, that that one's good. Yeah. But uh, this this one was an interesting one for for me, and uh, I'll sh- I'll share the backstory to that. So I was away traveling with my son as as I do when he's mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. and uh, so I didn't really get much. I, I wasn't I knew I wasn't going to have much time over the weekend to work on it because we had a lot of stuff planned, and I I was actually at a music festival, mm. and uh, no, nothing that really caught my caught my fancy we we did that with nicholas his first stage diving <laughs> it Excellent. was hilarious because we, we we just walked around from stage to stage and uh-huh. we ended up at the the metal stage and mm. somebody stage dived and it didn't look like anybody caught them. <laughs> yes that's the best and that, so so he got to see that and then the the next day i downloaded the downloaded the stuff to to prep for for working on everything and then i got up early on the on the tuesday morning the the, the day we 
I figured we'll probably have some time because we're going to be traveling. And my my flight got delayed by several hours, and mm. I ended up with no no power. Ooh. Uh, so you know, nowhere to keep my laptop powered up. So I didn't get a chance to work on it until we were driving home and stopping at rest stops and taking a, an hour here and there to pull things together. Oh, wow. So it was just a, a it was a case of scramble, scramble. Yeah. But I, I was really really happy with how that came out. Good, good, me too. Yeah, he was a good guy. And I couldn't do that one on Skype because they, uh, they um, said they wanted to call me directly. And so I had to use this app on my phone, which I used to use a lot. I don't use it as much now because the sound quality is not as good. But anyway, that's the deal with that. Uh, okay, uh, that should wrap up the, that's the last couple of months of episodes. I wanted to throw it out, Andy, in case there are other things that you've, have questions for us about or things you wanted to say or statements you wanted to make about anything related <laughs> to the show, feel free. I'll, uh, I'll, what do they call that? Uh, oh, I can't think of the word when you had my manifesto. Ah, yes. The Andy Shaw manifesto yes. here. Bring it. Let's hear it. <laughs> so, so John, you know, like I said, I've listened to all of these except for, you know, whatever it is, 10 or 15 of them. And sometimes I get timelines mixed up because I have listened to them, you know, totally mm-hmm. out of order. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's go back here. So you grew up in Salt Lake or mm-hmm. Utah? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Grew up in Salt Lake or? So a uh, good question. I was born in Salt Lake City because my mom was visiting her parents. So my grandparents lived there. I lived in the Bay Area. Uh, outside of San Francisco until I was 10. And then uh, our fa- my family moved to Utah and I grew up just outside of Salt Lake City. And three weeks after I graduated from high school, uh, my family moved to England and we lived in Cambridge for about a year. And that's how I know Yan. And our families, Yan's family and my family got to be really close. We still are. And um, a couple of months after I moved to Cambridge, Yan left on his mission And the following year, I left on my mission. While I was on my mission, uh, my family moved to Florida, and they lived in Boca Raton, Florida, for most of the two years that I was gone. I came home. I lived in Florida for three or four months. Uh, Then I moved to Provo, Utah, to go to college. And shortly after I did that, they moved to Colorado. So they lived in Denver. That's why, not why I live in Denver now, but I spent a couple summers working out here and I really liked it. And so when my wife and I were thinking of places we wanted to settle down, I wouldn't have, I wanted to kind of come back to Colorado, which we did. And, um, while I was in college, my family moved to Southern Utah. So my parents live in St. George, Utah, down by the, okay. on the way to Vegas. That's the whole story. Okay. And, and what does your father do? Cause I think I've heard two different careers mm. or jobs. Interesting. So my dad, my whole life was a flight attendant for United Airlines. Yeah. And um, he retired about 15 years ago. So he, yeah, I grew up flying anywhere I ever wanted to go. I had a stack of tickets and I could just fill them out (laughs) to where I wanted and I would go to the airport. Now we always had to fly standby. So I only got on flights where there was room, but I grew up I would go with him. He would have a layover in Honolulu for two days. And so I would just hop on the plane, go with him. We'd stay in a hotel, lay on the beach, turn around and come home the next day or whatever. I did that all the time. And um, 
Now, uh, as well as that, he taught piano my whole life, still does. Okay. Um, I tried it a couple of times. I didn't stick with it. He and I didn't get along growing up. Uh, I was more of an athlete. I played basketball and he was, you know, this, he conducted symphonies and taught piano and we just did not have a lot in common. And um, it wasn't actually until I started to kind of clean up my act and I decided to go on a mission, which was important to him, obviously, being a Mormon family, that we started to finally have something in common. And um, so I did, I grew up, the best way I knew to rebel against my dad was to not do any of the things that I knew he really wanted me to do, which included learning the piano, playing in a symphony, whatever. I do think that's where my love of music comes from. It's just we display our love of music differently. You know, I love being more of like a historian and more into rock and all that kind of stuff. I love all genres, but he's more proactive about it. He conducts, you know, orchestras and choirs and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's where it comes from. Interesting. And now you, you've talked about you were working in print journalism or you graduated with a journalism degree. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, um, yeah, sorry. Yep. I didn't know if there was more to the question. No, no. I just trying to get the timeline. So yeah. you talked about how you were working for a paper and you got to interview, was it the Indigo Girls? Yeah, yeah. And then from there, you kind of talk about how, well, then you worked for Tower Records. And I'm like, wait a minute, where, mm-hmm. you know, you've kind of talked about your career. And then now I know you've gotten into, you know, the IT sales. So yeah. I just trying to keep track of. So how long were you in the journalism field? for? You and me both uh, trying to keep track. No, not for not for very long. So when I was at BYU, I was a print journalism major. That's what I got my degree in. And I uh, was a reporter for the BYU newspaper. I was also a copy editor. I was the sports editor. Um, I also was a stringer for the Salt Lake Tribune for a while. So that was going to be, well, originally I was wanted to go into broadcast journalism. I wanted to be like a, you know, an anchor man or whatever. And then I started dating this girl who was an anchor woman and she was really beautiful and really sweet. But I got the impression from her that what's really happening behind the scenes is people wanting to kind of be in show business. There was a lot more of it was, you know, wanting to get more camera time and look good on camera and come up with something that would get you more camera time. And I just thought, well, that's not what I had in mind. I'm not I'm not interested in like being on camera because I think I'm amazing. I'm interested in telling a story. That's interesting to me. The broadcast part of it is interesting to me, you know? Sure. And so I changed my major kind of on a whim from broadcast to print because that felt more legitimate to me. And um, I don't know if I did the right thing or not, but I just knew that I didn't want to associate myself with the business, the show business part of it all. I'm not that vain. And um, so uh, after graduation, I got a job as the manage, the uh, managing editor of a weekly newspaper in this smaller town in Utah called Heber. It's outside of Park City. I did that for a few months. Um, I eventually got laid off. I don't even know if the paper's around anymore. And that was the period where I went back to stay at my parents' house in southern Utah when I had that conversation with Jackie Clary and was looking for a job and I eventually, the friend that I mentioned, who is our mutual friend, Ryan Razan, he was the Speaker of the State Assembly of California. Um, He worked for the Speaker of the State Assembly of California in Sacramento as like a press person. And I went crashed on his couch for three weeks. 
<laughs> and uh, he got me a job writing news copy at a radio station, which I just mentioned. That led to a job doing what's happened is I basically went from like print journalism to kind of more marketing into more or like uh, corporate communications, which turned into more marketing, which turned into more sales. So I bounced around Silicon Valley a little bit, took a couple jobs out there. My job, my dream had always been to be in music. I had a friend of a friend who worked for Tower Records. I took the guy to lunch one day well in advance and just said, if anything ever opens up here, I want the job. Something finally did. I got the job, lasted a couple of years, got laid off. They went out of business and um, I needed a real job. And a friend of mine said, who sold software for IBM said, um, you know, if you ever want a real job, I can connect you with my boss. (laughs) You know what I mean? A real job in the real world. No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And it meant uh, moving to Colorado. So I did. Have you seen the Tower Records documentary that's come out in the last few years? Oh, boy. Yes. I've seen it a couple of times. And um, I have a really... I know a lot of the people in that documentary. I have, this is a whole other thing. I have a lot of, because I got let go from that job. I'll just be honest about it. I got let go um, because I wasn't measuring up. And I learned, I didn't do anything like that got me fired. It was just more a consistent lack of attention to detail. You know, I'd forget to put somebody's album on sale. I'd forget to, I'd put it at the wrong price point. I would forget to, um, order something, whatever it was. I just, I learned a valuable lesson actually there, which is that even though that was the job, I I think because I had always wanted that job, I assumed that I would be perfect for that job. And when I got it, I think I rested on my laurels too much. I didn't respect that it was still like with Jackie and MTV. It's still a job. You still have something you have to do every day. You have responsibilities every day. You know what I mean? And I think I wasn't mature enough to do that. And it has always eaten at me. And so I, whenever I watch that Tower documentary, I get kind of emotional because I see where I failed. I had an opportunity to do the thing that I had always wanted to do, and I failed. And it has never sat well with me. I hope that I'm more mature now, that if something like that were to happen today, I would be more mature and know how to handle it. But when I got the dream job, I blew it because I was too immature. Okay. There you go. And no, you've you've mentioned it in passing, but you've never really expounded on it. So that's yeah. why I was always curious. Like, well, what did he do for Tower Records? He just kind of glosses over it, and you know, as mm-hmm. an aside, when you're talking to one of the musicians or something. So. Yeah, I did regional marketing, so um, I would cover like DC and Philadelphia, and there would you know you go into a store, and what's in the one A end rack is the new U two, and that's true for everywhere across <laughs> the world. But if you go into the two A or three B or whatever, those, the other stuff, the more territorial, what's happening locally, I would do all that. So we would, you know, uh, every month a label would send me 500 bucks and I would put their latest uh, artist on the end rack. And then I would go out and buy media like print newspaper or radio spots or whatever. And I would include their stuff in those, in that media. That's, that's what my job is. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. All right. Good to know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was really the, you know, the stuff I was curious about. Cause like I said, you know, I've heard different versions or, you know, I never quite get the timeline of where things are Yeah. when you go through some of these interviews. So good to clarify. There you have it. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird talking about myself. My gosh. 
But that's okay. I'm glad you asked those things if people are curious. I want to throw out a listener question. I cannot, unfortunately, remember who asked this question because it was a while ago. It was after the last uh, recap. But they wanted to know, what bands that everyone likes do we not like? And I've got a list here, but I'm going to throw it out to you guys first. Yan, why don't you go first? What, tell us what most people seem to like that you just can't understand. Well, I mean, for me, I don't know about bands in, in general, but, but the genre gangster rap. Can't stand it. Yeah. You have to admit, to have to admit, I'm kind of there with you. I do love the golden age of hip hop from like through the 80s, early 90s. But when it got to gangster, I kind of lost interest. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, Andy, what about you? What are some bands that people love that you don't understand? Well, the one, uh, and I don't even have like a hatred of them. So it's not even, they don't even ignite the passions of my hatred. <laughs> I just find them so bland. Uh, Green Day. Really? Never done anything for me. You know, the, the, uh, the first album had some, you know, catchy songs. I give mm-hmm. them that, but it just leaves me kind of, eh, okay. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, I, I can't say I disagree with you. I do love, to me, if all I really need is Dookie, a greatest hits package and American idiot. I do think American idiot is a really great album, but I'm not somebody who needs everything they've ever done. I, I, sure. I, I can understand. Deep dive on <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting band of reference. Um, Okay, I, uh, I have a list here. I'll be really quick about it. Um, now, I think I've been pretty upfront. First of all, I got I to gotta say that it, it's sort of, it's very strange talking about bands I don't like since starting this podcast because I would still interview anybody from the bands that I hate. Just because, you know, I, at this stage, I kind of, I see the other side now and I almost give everyone a chance at this point. But I have never come around to Counting Crows, Matchbox 20, or Smashing Pumpkins. I don't like any of those bands. Never have. Um, yeah, I just I can't do it. Any of them. I, w- I thought in this case I would list, there are bands that I think other people would assume that I would love based on my tastes that I don't. And they are Joy Division, which I like Joy Division, but I don't love Joy Division like other people seem gotcha. to. Gotcha. And Sonic Youth is another one. I've never quite come around to Sonic Youth. A buddy of mine gave me a two mixed CDs, one of like mellow Sonic Youth and one of feedback Sonic Youth. And they're fine, but they don't do anything for me. So I've never come around to Sonic Youth. And then the other one is Love and Rockets. I have never really liked Love and Rockets. I have their greatest hits CD and that's all I really ever need. Their sound, that like metallic-y grating, it's not, uh, I don't, it's off-putting to me. So those are the bands that I think people would assume that I would like that I don't. Yeah, I mean that's kind of right in your era. Yeah, uh, you know, especially with your love of the uh, the British I know. new wave and eighties. I know. Uh, Matchbox Twenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know they have some good songs, but yeah, I if I didn't have it, I wouldn't uh, be sad if I didn't own their stuff or listen to their stuff. Counting Crows, same thing. Yeah. I am hypersensitive to voices, I've found. There are certain singing voices that I just cannot stomach. And all three of those bands have those voices. It wouldn't like 
the music of Smashing Pumpkins is kind of interesting to me, but I can't deal with Billy Corgan's voice. And I actually find him really interesting. I've interviewed, I interviewed him for the BYU newspaper and he's very thoughtful. I like him as a guy, but I can't listen to him. And the same is true for Counting Crows and, oh my gosh, Rob Thomas of Matchbox. Hit that voice is the worst. All of, I, sh- I mean, all three of those, I cannot listen to any of them. One of our listeners, Hub Rigel, has it all figured out. Like He knows where exactly, like the range, a bit, certain range of baritone voice that I like versus, anyway, he's narrowed it down for me. Thank you, Hub. <laughs> but I just cannot deal with those three voices at all. I hate them. So anyway. Uh, okay, so let's go to Andy. You picked a top uh, topic for us to get into. Uh, yes. Tell us what you've picked and why. Uh, are we gonna? Do you want me to do all three? Or do no, you want I me want. Go- we're gonna go. We'll go around, and you're our special guest, so you go last, okay? Um, but tell us the topic that you picked, why you picked it, and then I don't know. We'll throw it over to me or Yan first, and you be the last since you're our honored guest. Certainly. Okay. All right. Well, my topic is our top three underrated slash underappreciated bands and or singers. Um, I think everyone who listens to this podcast, you know, probably has gone, you know, crazy when they've gone through your archives and said, oh, my God, they interviewed so and so. Well, you know, for me, it was Jim Babjack. Like, oh, my God, John interviewed Jim Babjack. That is the greatest because <laughs> I feel the smithereens are still uh, underappreciated, even okay. with, you know, Pat's passing. Um, so I figured anyone who's into music has those bands that why doesn't they get, why don't they get more press or some more love? Uh, you know, I think when you've had on the, the one gal, when you interviewed about the Rolling Stone, Mm -hmm. Jan Winter, you were, you were kind of curious of, well, why are these albums kind of considered, you know, the best albums? Why not Wang Chung's album or something? Why not? Exactly. So uh, I just I figured all of us would have some interesting picks. I'm so glad. I was just curious what uh, everyone had. I think that's I think that's a perfect topic. Um, yeah, and why don't you kick it off? Tell us who you and we're going to rank these three, two, one. We're going to close out with our top, and we'll let you go last, Andy, since you're the guest. So yeah, and who do you have ranked number three on your list? Okay, so my number three would be Dire Straits. I think they're totally whoa. Un- underrated even though they're in the rock and roll hall of fame now yeah really I th- well I think- i'd say it took them uh, quite a long time to get in there good point yeah it took them i think they're un- underrated and t- i mean like i said during one of our previous uh, discussions i think they're you know not a, a, a talent that has done so much and yet he gets slammed so much hmm. i'm afraid i'm one of those people because i don't get it I like really? some of it. Yeah, I like some of it, but not enough. And he's another one whose voice kind of bothers me. Well, it's kind of his, his, yeah. his soundtrack work. Yeah. You'd think I'd like that better, but I don't. <laughs> Sorry, I just have never... I don't mind Dire Straits. My father-in-law loves them. And I, I like them, but I don't... I would never pop them on for pleasure or anything. Like that. And well, I have... Get... Oh, I'm sorry, Andy. Go ahead, Andy. Go ahead, Andy. You know, Dire Straits is a band, uh, you know, I might not have done the deep dive on them, but what I know I like. Kind of like Bowie, you know, what I know from, you know, Rebel Rebel, I'll listen to that all day long. You know, uh, Sultan's a Swing, give that, I'll take that, or, uh, uh, you know, Money for Nothing and Walk of Life, all great songs. I can't knock them. 
I think they're, you know, they have the, the pop chops and they have, you know, the critical, um, you know, uh, applause. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark Knopfler as a guitar is unbelievable as a yeah. guitarist. Yeah, I agree. It just doesn't make it pleasurable to listen to for me. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm the odd man out on this one. Yeah, and what, give us a, what song would you want to play to, like, encapsulate your love for Dire Straits? For me, Telegraph Road. His guitar mm. on Telegraph Road is phenomenal. Good. Good one. Okay. Cool. We'll sprinkle in a little Telegraph Road right there. Okay. Um, was that... I, I don't want to cut anyone off. Is that everything you want to say, Yeah. Yep. No, okay. That good. covers it. Okay. Um, so I'll go next, and then because we want you to get the last pick here, Andy. So I uh, I really struggled over this. First and foremost, the, the names that came to mind are all the people that I have already expressed on here many times, like the Chameleons or the Trash Can Sinatras or Marshall Crenshaw that I think are very underrated. And uh, so then I thought, well, that's not that interesting because we've already I've already tried to sh- I've already showcased them. So I started making a list of who I would want to pick, and then I took that list and I thought, well, what are three people that might have a connection because I could, I mean, my list could be different tomorrow, you know? So what I decided to go with was I went with three eighties, one hit wonders that are usually sort of derided or, uh, really tossed off. Maybe they're even kind of the butts of jokes. And I, cause I want to sort of stand up for these people. So, uh, so that's the theme to my, my selections today. So for number three, I'm actually going to go with Kaja Gugu. And uh, the reason I say that is because everyone knows Too Shy, which, let's be honest, Too Shy is a great song. That is a great song. Um, But I think because they had a goofy name, everyone, again, going back to that punching bag, piling on groupthink way of doing things, everyone wants to undercut Kaja Gugu. Well, after Lamal left, after the first album that has Too Shy on it, Nick Beggs, the bass player, who everyone knows is one of the best bass players around um, of any genre. He took over as the front man and their next couple of albums are so good. And their second uh, album is called Islands. And to me, the sound from that is not that far removed from somebody like Level 42. A bass heavy, sort of funky, but very poppy, little R&B stuff going on. Uh, I think their stuff is really great. So I want to play a song called The Lion's Mouth off their second album, Islands. We'll play a little bit of that. Okay. Does anyone have feelings about Kaja Gugu? Uh, I don't know if I find them to be butts of jokes, but, uh, you know, I, uh, I've, again, have done a deep dive of them maybe because they were just too early in the 80s for for me being uh you know just shy of 44 here true okay have you ever listened really to kaja gugu beyond too shy yeah not really i yeah. mean there was lamal stuff for for a never-ending story mm-hmm. that yeah. was quite good that was a good song oh, and that yeah. was giorgio moroder by the way there he is again. Yeah, there he is. So, yeah, I just think there's... And here's the other thing, too. I purposely pick people that have not been on our show yet, maybe, uh, just to kind of spread the love around. But I just think there's more to Kacha Gugu than a funny name, some funny hair, and one good song. So, anyway, that's my pick. 
Got it. All right, well, it's uh, my turn here, and I hope Yan might be able to uh, provide some uh, commentary on this one. I went with my uh, my third choice as the Silencers. Ooh, who, uh, yes! Who O'Neill hails from Scotland, <laughs> so uh, maybe yeah. maybe Yan has some thoughts on on this choice. But uh, you know, this is one that I found out about twelve years ago. Rhino used to have a podcast called the Rhino Cast, and Bob Lefsetz again um, did a spotlight on the silencers. And I heard it, and the clips he played, I said, man, those are really good. But at the time, their stuff was not available on Spotify or iTunes or anywhere, so I had to go to the, you know, the, dark, the dark world to find their first two albums. And what I heard is just fascinating. I think these are two albums, their first one... Um, uh, oh gosh, I'm totally spacing. A uh, letter from St. Paul. Yep, letter from uh, St. Paul. Awesome. And then their second one, Blues, or yeah, Blues for Buddha. Uh, I don't think there's a bad track on either one of them. Mm. And this is uh, again, we have a, a, Min- a Minnesota connection here. Um, a letter from St. Paul. I, I was thinking of religious connotations, but it's actually uh, Jimmy O'Neill received a letter from a girl from McAllister College, which is a very small, elite, private college here in St. Paul. And I think he put it to music. I think it was supposed to be more of a Dear John letter. Like he was dating a girl. She was studying here at the university and uh, broke up with them via mail, you know, in 1985 or 86. And uh, and that was the, the letter to St. Paul. And then they just kind of put that track together. Wow. But, uh, I mean, off that first album, I mean, Painted Moon is just an awesome song. That's one of my favorite songs of all time. In fact, if anyone remembers, when I was on the Rock Solid podcast last year and I chose the topic of Lost Gems of the 80s, I played that song on there. That I <laughs> love that song. Yeah. John, I didn't even know that. Really? <laughs> so, uh... Oh, okay. Well, you're not missing much. But it, that, that <laughs> is one of my favorite songs of all time. Featured in the movie Morgan Stewart's Coming Home with John Cryer, which is a terrible movie, but I have it on yep. DVD anyway. <laughs> and I think that goes into your point you said a couple episodes ago about, you know, in the 80s, these uh, labels didn't know what to do with some of these bands, so they just kind of threw them on soundtracks to kind of see if they would gain any traction. Yeah, that's my thinking on it, exactly. Um, yeah. Oh, I Painted did Moon. Now. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. You're just... you're. You're cutting right to the core on that because that is one of my favorite songs of all time. Love it. Sure. And uh, just I did a little dive here on the silencers, and they were opening acts for The Alarm, The Pretenders, Simple Minds, Squeeze, <laughs> Bowie, mm. and U2 back in the late 80s. So, I mean, they were out there, and they just never got the traction. Do you know who they are, Yan? Because they're Scottish. Yeah, I'm aware of them. I hadn't really listened to mm. <laughs> It's uh it's good stuff. Now Jimmy O'Neill was before the uh, silencers a member of a really excellent pop power pop band called Fingerprints with a Z. Um and I know this because if anyone listening, BJ Cramp's Rock and or Roll podcast, early, early on, I think it was like one of his first episodes, he interviewed Jimmy for the show and it was great and they went through all of this stuff 
his whole career. In fact, I've always wanted to have Jimmy on the show, and I don't because I think, well, BJ already did it. He did a really good job, and so what do I need to do it for? I need to get over that way of thinking. I do that a lot. But anyway, perfect choice. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, and another little bit of trivia. Uh, when I signed up for the Simple Minds email newsletter a few years ago, it came with like six free downloads, and one of them was the silencers doing a live version of Painted Moon opening for Simple Minds in Europe somewhere. Nice. But it was from then. It was from like the 2010 or whatever, or late 2000s. Anyway. Yeah, they they did put out an album, I think, in like the early 2000s of like a live okay. show. Maybe that's what it uh, and was. And that was on iTunes for the longest time before they finally got on these other two albums. Mm. Okay, good. So, yeah, there is stuff out there. Um, yeah, great band. You nailed it with that one. Good job. <laughs> Love it. Good. Praise from John Lamoureux is praise indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're killing it here, Andy. I'm so – I love it. Uh, okay, Yan, what's number two on your list? Okay, so for me, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going back to a couple of my standards that I've talked about before. For me, my number two has got to be the supergroup, The Thorns. Uh-huh. I really think those guys really got short shrift from probably their label and the listening public. And I think they could have done so much more. There's really only one album out there uh, uh, to get. They only did, they only did one album. Yeah. Just the one, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, by the way, I was going to tell you, Yan, after you and I talked about them recently, I emailed Matthew Sweet because he has a new album out too to see if he would come on the show, but I never heard back. He was just in St. Paul on Friday. Really? Yeah, I was debating about whether to see it, but I don't know if anyone would want to go with me of my uh, my friends. That's an interesting question. And- Do you not go to concerts by yourself? Uh, I have on a couple times, and that'll be my number one pick. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we'll leave it at that then. But okay. but uh, but I have done that before, and I've actually made friends when I've gone. So, because I go to like ninety percent of my concerts by myself, my wife doesn't care or want to go as often as I do, and I found that it's just more. I'm not concerned what other people are thinking. With I just go by myself and do what I like, you know. So sure. tonight I'm going to go see Janelle Monae just by myself, and I cannot wait. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting choice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what if you were going to play us a song by the Thorns, what would you play us? Uh, for me, the you know, the titles, the, you know, the first song on the album is fantastic, but for me, the the best song on the album is the last one, and it's called Among the Living. Good. Nice. Cool. Okay, good. And... And it's just, oh, it's very, uh, probably it and one of the other ones on the album are the ones that are closest to Crosby, Stills and Nash that they do. And that was very, a big influence for them, Mm -hmm. for those three guys. Good. Uh, Sean Mullins is another one. I need to get him on the show. I, uh, um, he would be interesting to talk to. Good, good choice. That was one of the albums. Oh, I was going to say real quick, when I worked at Tower, the beauty of working at Tower was getting all these free CDs and concerts. And um, that was one of the albums that came out while I worked there. And so there were just 
dozens of copies of the Thorn CD laying around the office all the time. And I grabbed one and then I lost it. And I don't know whatever happened to it. But um, so I haven't heard it for a long time. But I was associated with that time I was at Tower. Have you ever listened to the Thorns or have any thoughts, Andy? Uh, you know, I've heard a couple of their songs. Uh, good, you know, anything with Matt's, Matthew Sweet attached to it, I'm I'm down for a listen. Mm-hmm. And that was going to be my question for Jan: Is he, uh, is it the Matthew Sweet connection, or is it just the the Thorns themselves? It's actually the the blend of the three. Oh, with Sean Mullins and yeah, and and Pete, uh, Pete Droge, I think is his name, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, they have some sweet harmonies, that's for sure. Um, oh, yeah. Good. Okay, cool. Uh, so my second pick, were you done, by the way, with the Thorns? Yeah? Yep, I okay. am, yep. Good, okay. My second pick is another one-hit wonder from the 80s, and that is Swing Out Sister. I actually oh. really love Swing Out Sister. And, uh, you know, they're most known for their that song Breakout off their first album. Yep. I just have always really appreciated... They're, how kind of jazzy and loungy they are and they're not but it's not cheesy it seems to come very authentically real musicianship you know real horns I miss horns I love horns and we don't get them anymore and um, I have all of their CDs I think they're all great um, some are better than others but um, I just think they're a, once you get that kind of loungy jazzy poppy feel in your blood it doesn't go away and i think they're a great band so uh my favorite one of my favorite songs of theirs is on their third album get in touch with yourself from 1991 and the song is am i the same girl (laughs) john i was just thinking if i had to pick up a swing out sister song that was the one there you go isn't it great it's a cover it's got lots of horns it swings it's so good no, uh, excellent choice. Good. Thank you. Yes. I have tried <laughs> to get them on the show and they said, well, when, we, when the new album's ready, maybe we will. And that was years ago and the new albums never come out. And I don't know when I'm going to ever hear from them. So anyway, I like them a lot. I think they're worth uh, some attention. No, I agree. Totally. Good. All right, Andy, what you got for number two? All right. Numero two. Uh they are an awesome band, but for whatever reason, they kind of drift in and out of the public's or into the uh, music world. Uh, the brand new heavies. Ooh, yes. I like to call them the brand new singer. <laughs> because yes. I had to go to Wikipedia because even I wasn't sure who their singer is these days. They have put out nine studio albums and have used eight different vocalists. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yes, and I think Nadia Davenport is the only one they've really used consistently over the years. And for me, it's the Nadia, Nadia Davenport stuff is mind blowing. Good. Good. And uh, John and Yen, I, I know you're not the the gangster rap fans, but there was uh, the Guru who was with the group Gangstar. I love Guru. Not a guru. He did. Uh, oh gosh, what was it called? Jazz Matazz Volume One. Yes, I love that album. Great album. I have that. And to hear Nadia Davenport's vocals on that thing, it it just melted butter. (laughs) It's just smooth. And uh, my choice would be off of their first album, the song Stay This Way, which was a minor hit here. Um, 
it didn't really catch, you know, it didn't really get them a lot of traction, but uh, it's just, I could listen to that song all day long. Her vocals and the, the, the riffs on it and the solos and outstanding. I cannot believe you picked that. Number one, I think they're great. Number two, I have that Jasmine Taz album and I love it. And, uh, and they, uh, yeah, do you remember Lauren Cook, our friend? Yep. Lauren requested that we get the brand new heavies on the show, and I haven't uh, done that yet because there seems like so many people I don't even know who to start with. But this is a good idea. I'll go after her. Anyway, great, great choice. Yeah, and it's sad. You know, the band just never seems to get together. Their website's defunct right now. Mm. They they have a presence on Facebook, but uh, you know, it's like they play two shows in the UK a year. And then in the last decade, when I've been following them on like Facebook or when they did have a website, you know, they would be playing in, you know, Abu Dhabi at a jazz festival. And that would be like their only show for the year. And it's like, uh, is there anything on this continent? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I mean, just what they put out, if you love funk, and I don't even know if you call it funk, it's kind of like a smooth jazz mixed with R&B, mixed with funk. It's like the average white band meets earth wind and fire you know meets shock yep. con <laughs> excellent i love it i mean it's a perfect thing to say after swing out sister they're not that far removed from each other i don't think that is a great great choice thank you yeah awesome um okay yan what's your number one most underrated uh artist okay for me again going back to one of my standards and it has to be Screaming Trees. Uh, I had a feeling that's what you would pick. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they did do seven studio albums, but they never really got the success that I, th- I think they deserved. I think they deserved a bit more. And they're early runners in the the Seattle scene. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, I would rate them better than Nirvana. I could oh. see that. I could see that. And are on the single soundtrack. Yes, they sure are. Yeah. Trying to remember, was that? Uh, I'm trying to remember what song that's on there. Um, uh, the one I quoted early, "Nearly Lost You." There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good choice, Ian. Good. Yeah, def- definitely one of one of my favorite bands ever. And for the the song, um, for them, I'm picking "Sworn and Broken." Is that off Uncle Anesthesia? No, it's off of dust. Dust, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Good pick. Cool. I had a feeling you would go with Screaming Trees. They're a great band. Great band. Yeah. Uh, well, I particularly love Mark Lanigan's vocals. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. That really makes it. I agree. He's got some just some weather weathering in his voice that is so unique to him. You just, uh, no one sounds like that, you know? And you know that that grit and grime is hard-earned. You can just feel it, you know, when he sings it. It's not an apparition. It's a, or a, um, it's, it's not put upon. It's He's not faking it. It's real and organic, you can tell. Yeah. Can you imagine him and E.G. doing a duet? Ooh, that might be interesting. <laughs> we need to make that happen. We need to parlay this podcast into like music Spengalihood, Yan. <laughs> we need to make stuff like that happen. Why not? Well, John, I think I, 
I like your one, you brought it up in one episode where you get all these guys that were on soundtracks that had, you know, yes. one or two songs, and you have your, your Vegas concert of, you know, soundtrack of the 80s night. <laughs> I want to do that so bad. If there was a logical, like, extension of where this would go, it would be in, like, Hustle Fest or something like that, you know? <laughs> Getting some of these people together and letting them do their thing, and not just three songs like at Lost 80s, but, you know, give them a half hour. Four bands, a half hour each. Go ahead. Okay, what's your first choice there, Andy? Numero uno. This is a a little bit more of an oldies than the Hustle Show tends to go, but this guy did have hits into the late 70s, or a hit into the late 70s, and is my favorite singer, uh, Johnny Rivers. (laughs) Really? And like Gene Pitney, uh, I think kind of, you know, people of our age might, you probably know the songs, but you probably just overlook them. And he is 75 years young, and he's still putting out some great bluesy stuff uh, that I encourage people to go check out. I can uh, I could tell you a lot of things, but uh, about Johnny Rivers, but he uh, he's kind of short shrifted in the history of rock and roll. Mm. He's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, he's got you know his own career. Plus, he was instrumental in bringing in Jimmy Webb again. Mm-hmm. As a songwriter, he paired up Jimmy Webb with the Fifth Dimension, and they came up with "Up Up." Or they recorded "Up Up and Away," which Johnny Rivers produced, and he was he won the Grammy in 1967 as the producer for Song of the Year for "Up Up and Away." And uh, you know, he's kind of overlooked in the in the history of rock and roll, and I don't know why. Hmm. I got to be honest; I, I know the name, and I probably knows I know some of those things you just mentioned, but I don't know if I've ever listen to a Johnny Rivers album, not even a Greatest Hits. Yeah, you know, I would tell people to start with the Greatest Hits, and if you like that, venture out. But if you've heard any, you know, his stuff's been used, well, in Austin Powers, they use Secret Agent Man, mm, which is used in commercials okay. still today. Um, he did have a number one song. Uh, it's actually what knocked Last Train to Clarksville <laughs> by the Monkees off the top of the charts back in 1966, and that's my my choice here for today. It's called The Poor Side of Town. Mm. Number one in November of 66, but it's one of those songs where if you would have told me it was recorded in 1956, I would have believed you. Um, it's got the Wrecking Crew doing the, the, the instrumentation. Nice. Uh, so, you know, top session guys. And then he has The Blossoms, which uh, they're featured in that 20 Feet from Stardom mm. documentary mm-hmm. from a few years ago. Darlene Love. They do the ooby doobies and the shooby doobies. So, John, <laughs> I know you you love the African-American lady. I background. do. Like there. I this sure is do. Your alley. I suggest you, uh, you check this one out. Okay. But uh, he's still going strong. He uh, he slowed down a, few, a little bit over the years. He hasn't toured as much, but he was still doing about 30 dates a year, only on the weekends. He I think made enough money in his career and held on to it. And that's a that's probably another story um, that he wasn't having to play, you know, a Tuesday night in uh, you know Tulsa, Oklahoma, or something. You know, he's, he only plays fr- Friday Saturday gigs. That's great! Wow, that's actually pretty impressive. Yeah, and no if kidding. It's bluesy. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah, no, he did a lot of stuff, and how big he was. So, you know, the Whiskey A Go-Go in L.A., or the Whiskey, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of the first app here in Minneapolis. He was the act, he was the, the opening act. He opened the Whiskey, back then it was called the Whiskey A Go-Go, and kind of made 
made them on gave them their cachet. Really? So yeah. And when the Beatles came to LA in 1964, they uh, whoever you know whatever radio station in town said, "Well, what do you guys want to do tonight?" They said, "Take us. We want to go check out Johnny Rivers at the Whiskey A Go Go." No way. So, uh, and a drunk George Harrison, uh, I think, meant to throw a drink at a photographer, photo- a photographer who was taking photos of him. He misses the photographer and douses Johnny Rivers' date with a drink. And I think those two kind of <laughs> exchanged some words, but then they became friendly uh, over the years. And there's uh, Johnny even had a picture of him on his website of uh, him with George Harrison, you know, probably circa 1966. No way. Uh, cool. Wow. So. It, oh god i could i we could do a whole show about johnny rivers <laughs> wow but, uh, but one of the interesting things of his is he was born johnny ramostella in uh new york city as a kid moved to baton rouge at his junior high dances back in the you know mid 50s fats domino was the band that would play at their dances oh wow he, he kind of got the whole you know uh, New Orleans, Louisiana R&B, early rock and roll stuff. Anyways, he's a kid. You know, he has a he puts out a 45 down in Louisiana as like a 15, 16 year old. Had family still up in New York City, so he flies up to New York City as a teenager. Stands outside of Alan Freed's radio station and sees Alan Freed and goes up to him and says, "Hey, you know, my name's Johnny Ramostella. I'm from Baton Rouge. I got this 45." And Alan Freed, I guess, listened to it and thought there was enough there. And he's like, "Kid, you'll never make it with the, you know, the Italian name." <laughs> he's like, "Where are you from again?" And he said, "Oh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, right off of the Mississippi River." And Alan Freed says, "Uh, no, don't go with Ramostella. Go with uh, Rivers. Yeah, you're you're Johnny Rivers now, kid." Perfect. And, oh my and, gosh! Uh, you know, christened him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then he just took off in 64 with his live at the whiskey a go-go album and uh kind of never really looked back he just kind of did that formula throughout the 60s of kind of he did a lot of cover versions or remakes of songs Mm -hmm. um but what's ironic about his career is he's mostly known for his remakes but poor side of town was actually a song he wrote and that's the one he would go to score number one hit with wow cool and I have asked because I'm friends with his fan club president to ask for me, and I guess he does. He's not doing many interviews these days. But I oh, said, really? "Oh, here would have been guy that would have been perfect." Because not only was he an artist, but he also did a lot of the, the back end stuff. Like he had his own record label and his own music publishing company, and uh, would probably you know have some great stories for you. But that's great. Alas, not at the moment. <laughs> wow. Well, cool. Well, I uh, I love that because I don't. I mean, I know Secret Agent Man. I'm sure I know a lot of those songs, but I've never focused on Johnny Rivers for any period of time. So that is great. Good choice, John. The same thing. When I was a kid, my best friend had the Johnny Rivers Greatest Hits, and I didn't. You know, I knew Secret Agent Man. You know, Mm -hmm. and I'm 13, and as he played this tape for me, it's like I knew all these songs just from listening to like all these radio in the car with my parents. It's like, oh, I know that song. I know that song. Mm -hmm. So I think he's a guy that you know you probably don't know that's who you're Mm -hmm. listening to all those years ago, but uh, I'm sure it'll spark some memories here. Good, cool. Well, I love that. Great, uh, great choice. Um, Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I think we've uh, tackled every 
subject we were going to tackle. Um, Five hours podcast. I know that's what it feels like. Um, are you? So let me ask. I mean, are you satisfied, Andy, with how this went? And let me just say, I want to I want to throw this out there to you and to anyone else, anyone who donates to come on and do this. If you're not fully satisfied with your experience, you tell us and we'll give you your money back or a portion of your money or whatever. The whole point of this is to make you feel good and have a and for us to have a fun time together. And oh. if anyone feels like that didn't happen, then I will just give you your money back. No problem. Oh, I had a blast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. I did. No, I like I said, John, John and Yan, you know, you guys putting out, you know, quality episodes week in, week out. I mean, as I told you before, John, I had once thought about doing a podcast just with like people I've run into, uh, you know, in mm-hmm. my life to put their stories out there. And I started researching the work that would go into it. So uh, hats off to you and Yan for the time commitment. I mean, I'm sure this is not, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's other things you'd rather be doing with your time than, uh, you know. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if that's true. This is actually what, exactly what I wish I could spend all my time on. Well, you true, know? true. Yeah, I get yeah. that. I get that. Yeah. But, but uh, no, anyways. you guys uh, should be commended for what you're doing here. Great. Well, that means a lot. And I'm so grateful for you and all the effort you do into furthering our cause. And just being a supportive listener, there's nothing better. I love hearing from people. I love uh, when they check in. I love hearing what people think. Um, I love when they're honest with me, all of it. So I really am grateful for you, Andy, and your relationship with us and your support and everything. It means the world. Thank you so much. Oh, no problem. And everyone out there, John won't say it, but go out there and get a Hustle Podcast t-shirt at Amazon. <laughs> that would be great. very cool. They don't shrink in the dryer and they don't scratch your nipples. What more do you want? <laughs> show, show your Hustle Podcast love to all your friends in town. I love it. I, um, I actually wore mine to work the other day. I n- almost never wear it because it just feels kind of funny. But I was walking down the main street here in Denver and there was a someone coming the other direction wearing a Book of Love t-shirt. And huh? yeah, and I thought... Okay, there. That person. It, I wonder if I mean there's so few of a you know book of love fans out there that would wear oh, a t-shirt. Sure. I thought, <laughs> what what are the chances that that person? I think it was a girl. I think she may have been a lesbian. Um, I so I think what were the chances that she has heard Susan on our show? That there's actually a decent little chance of that. You know, if you care enough about book of love. You might have heard our episode. And I thought if I were wearing my hustle shirt, she might put something together. And so the next day I wore my hustle shirt at work. By then it was too late. But I had this moment where I thought maybe, you know. So anyway. And John, we'll do this again. And we'll come when I come back, we'll do our three favorite Rolling Stones albums that are better than Exile on Main Street. (laughs) Because I want to give, you know, I want to give the middle finger to all the rock critics that, you know, Exile on Main Street's the number one album of all time. Good. I could think of three Stones albums I would listen to before. Ooh, Mike Wagner <laughs> is going to be so mad when he hears this. <laughs> but too bad. Um, okay, good. Well, look, we're going to close it out as we've been doing lately. We want to close it out with a song by one of our listeners that is available for purchase on iTunes. 
Um, and let me just say, I feel bad sometimes because I don't, I don't always, I don't want to do full episodes with these people. No offense to all of you, just because we try to focus on the people who are like in the, you know, have had a shot at the music business or whatever, but I want to be supportive in any way that I can. So this is a song from our friend Smidge Kirtlebaum and his band, A Fraction of a Dot. This is called Not My Generation. He has a new EP out that is uh, very funky. It's not funky in the sense that it's funk music, but it's kind of proggy and strange, but cool. Uh, So look up A Fraction of a Dot on iTunes or Spotify. This song is called Not My Generation. We're going to close out with that. Oh, the kids are all right. 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 Oh, the kids are all right.